0: That Triathlon Show, 366. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode I interview Alan Murchison. Alan is a lifelong endurance athlete and one of few athletes to both run under 30 minutes for a 10k and ride under 18 minutes for 10 miles. He's also a chef with 25 years of experience in Michelin starred kitchens and today he runs Performance Chef where he works with athletes from amateur level up to the highest possible level in sports of triathlon cycling and other endurance sports and we will discuss nutrition and food for triathletes and endurance athletes at a very practical level today with a practitioner who really knows what he's talking about both regarding food and nutrition and endurance sports. It is a long interview, as you can see. Uh, That's always a good sign, I think, that it was a great conversation with lots of interesting topics and questions to tackle. And uh, well, Alan definitely can talk. There's no getting around that. Uh, A quick piece of housekeeping before we thank our sponsors and then head right into the interview. And this housekeeping item is a really important one. So please listen. Uh, I am currently running a listener survey about that triathlon show. And I would really like uh, every single piece of feedback that I can get because I'm really serious about improving the podcast not just with small tweaks and small incremental improvements but i'm ready to do significant changes based on what you the listener wants so you can find the link to the survey in the episode description or in the navigation bar on scientific or just go directly to scientific forward slash survey and uh, i hope that you can take the time to fill this one out Uh, that will help me make the podcast better Uh, i will talk more about this in a future episode when i have done all the analysis from the responses to the survey but uh, i am a bit frustrated with the podcast this year uh, to be completely honest Uh, i think things have gotten a bit stagnant and stale at times and i'm not happy with that i'm aware of that and i want to improve things with your help so uh, yeah that's why i'm asking you to help by taking this survey all right let's thank our sponsors precision fuel and hydration Uh, precision fuel and hydration create uh, sports nutrition products both carbohydrate and hydration products and they help you use them effectively through a range of free tools services and content the fuel and hydration planner on their website is a one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you it's free and super easy to use it only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions and then you get a detailed simple and effective race plan they also offer free video consultations as a listener of the podcast you can get 15 percent off your first order of the range of electrolyte and carbohydrate products by using the code tts22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to zen The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dryland swim trainer that allows you to improve technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working on your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can even use it to do activation work before a pool or open water swim, or to do swim bike brick workouts more easily. You can try the Zenate risk free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back. and you can get a special TTS Senate bundle, including the swim bench and a bunch of Senate training plans and on demand workouts on senateswinter.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Alan Murchison. Welcome to that travel show, Alan. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you. I'm in a rainy UK, so um, as well as can be expected.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's raining here as well, so, uh, so I've had to uh, postpone some sessions that I was going to do this morning, but uh, it's all good. Um, we've actually started talking, I think, three or four years ago, and, <laughs> and now we're finally doing an interview, so that's quite funny. Can you introduce uh, yourself to the listeners? Tell us more about who you are.
1: Ah, brilliant. Okay, so my name's Alan Murchison, so I'm fairly confident of a couple of things. I'm probably the least academically gifted person you've had on your podcast by some margin, and I probably take the longest to respond to emails. So I think we're about three years ago we started correspondence about getting involved in the show. So um, my background is a Michelin star chef. I spent many years, in fact over 25 years, working in and running Michelin star restaurants, so high-end fine dining restaurants. Um, I'm an ex-international runner, ran for Scotland, and then in my later years got into duathlon and now predominantly I do time trialing as my sport. Um, my, my role is uh, a performance chef. That's kind of a self-titled role. And I work with specialised factory racing at the moment, mountain bike team. And I travel on the road with them and work with their riders, both at races and away from races, doing nutritional plans for them. Uh, in the past, I worked for British Cycling, which I spent over three years working with the podium squad there. Last season, I was with canyon Schram, women's world tour team, um, do a little bit of work in Formula One and also work with some athletes at Swiss Olympic Roy.
0: Great. And uh, within triathlon, I know you worked with, with some athletes there as well. Maybe it's on a private basis. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But can you give some context for your work with triathletes as well?
1: Yeah, I think um, probably the, the most famous athlete I worked with back in the day was Gwen Jorgensen. Um, I was f- um, in touch with her and her husband, Pat, in the build-up to Rio Olympics. So she was the first athlete of note that I worked with, and I got on really well with them and still keep in contact now. I work with quite a number of high-profile triathletes now, but most of that's confidential stuff. You know, They all want to keep the secrets to themselves yeah you know, as, you, as you know with triathlon it's not really a team sport it's a very individual sport so um yeah but gwen was the first athlete of real note that i worked with and yeah she was pretty special
0: yeah yeah absolutely um when you work with athletes whether it's cyclists or triathletes or even formula one athletes what is the nature of that work and maybe it varies but you can describe the different varieties of uh that it, that it takes uh so what is your role and responsibilities uh in your role as a performance chef
1: um It's very, very different with each uh, individual athlete. So, for example, um, with Specialized Factory Racing, I'm on the road with them. All the World Cups, uh, World Championships, training camps, and that will be doing all the food, all the nutritional planning and very individual plans for each rider um, at events. With some professional athletes I work with who are on the road a lot... It might be a matter of hooking up with them, doing cookery lessons, showing them how to shop and how to give them solutions around the environment they're in. So they might be in an Airbnb, they might be having to navigate a hotel buffet, or they could be completely self-sufficient. So it, it depends very much on the athlete and the needs of the athlete. And as you know yourself, athlete skills around food and cooking are hugely varied so some athletes you could send them a recipe and say cook this others you literally have to walk them through a supermarket and show them how to shop in individual areas so it'll depend on the on the pro athlete um and then our, our you know our core business at home is doing sort of food and nutrition plans alongside coaching so for example if you said to me hi i'm michael i work from monday to friday in an office doing tech and i train 12 hours a week and i want to qualify for a world 70.3 sort of case study there what i would do is i would go onto your training peaks and when your training was in for the following week i would upload a food plan that sits alongside your training peaks and then send you a shopping list so you've got all your sort of performance solutions in one place so if for example your coach put in you were doing a 45 minute swim and a two-hour bike ride i'd put the food into training peaks so the two sit alongside so that's a service that we offer for for some athletes and others it will be a matter of you know i have athletes regularly who phone me out and go i'm at the hotel buffet what do i eat or there's nothing to eat in the hotel or we're traveling and staying in the airbnb and there's an aldi what do i buy so it's 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 very reactive to the individual situation
0: mm. yeah so if i'm that uh worker in the tech industry with 12 hours a week or a week to train uh is that the food plan that you put in training peaks is it an entire, everything that I should eat for the day, including snacks, including fueling during the training, unless the coach puts it there? Uh, or is it more like, okay, your key meals, your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then add snacks around that? How 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 detailed is it?
1: Again, depends on the athlete. Some athletes want to know everything. They want to even know timings, you know, three hours before. So it'll depend on the athlete's knowledge. And as, as you're aware of being a coach yourself, Athletes are on a journey. I hate that term, but they're always on a journey and their knowledge is building up. So some athletes, you don't need to tell them to eat a snack three hours before a session. Um, other athletes are really much more prescriptive. So what we'll do is we'll give them as much or as little information as you know, and it kind of balances out because for every every athlete that's, that, that's requiring a lot of attention, a lot of detail, you'll have somebody that's quite happy with a shopping list and a very loose plan. So again, it depends on the individual athlete, The main one that we try and focus on as well is making sure that they're practicing in training what they're going to put into place for key events. So we'll, again, get them in the habit of trying to fuel on the bike or fuel for hard sessions and where possible just simplify it. So very individual approach, to be honest.
0: Mm. and um yeah this is a bit off the cuff it's not in the list of questions that i sent to you but uh where do you feel you make the most impact the biggest difference is it with some of your pro athletes or is it with with asian athletes
1: that's a really really good off the cuff question I I I would say the main thing with them is 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 the accountability is great. As you know, people only ever do two things in life. This is a, this is an Alan saying they do two things in life, they do things they enjoy and things by which they can be held accountable. So if I can make the food enjoyable and tasty, and if it's in the training peaks, everybody likes a green light in training peaks. We all like those green lights. So if they can hit the training block and they can hit the session and the food's enjoyable and it's easy. Then I think that makes a massive, massive difference. And um, again, it I, I find recreational athletes hugely satisfying to work with because in some respects, pros are really easy because they've got nothing else to worry about. It's their job. You know, so if you think about it, even if you're doing, you know, at the high end 25, 30 hours a week, it's not like having a 40-hour-a a week job and kids and a family and all those other things that to work with. So but in some respects, professional athletes are a lot easier because they've got that very clear focus about what they're doing. It's when you've got people that are maybe on a conference call and have to delay a session by an hour or they have to move everything for a day because life's got in the way. I think that's a lot more challenging, really. Um, but the accountability is the key one. You know, If it's in Training Peaks, people will want to do it. It's that accountability. And as you know, you get to a level in the sport and you might have been... You might have been doing it for years, but most coaches are coached themselves because they need the accountability, and I think that's something that's really important is that you know it's it's just taking away the thinking that's yeah. really key for me
0: yeah and i I'm projecting a little bit from myself but also um definitely this applies to uh the, the large majority of athletes that I coach that one big thing is um making making it quick as you already mentioned but the combination of quick and enjoyable like personally for example like i can make some really nice food or i can make some really quick food but combining the two that's not necessarily that easy that's that's where i feel like maybe i could i could use some help and actually i'm fine with eating boring food uh, that's quick to make for during the week and and that's that works for me but if you're somebody for whom that gets a little bit old and and you want to you only have those 20 minutes to cook basically but you want something that is tastes better than rice and beans then uh then that's where like i think i think it can make a probably make a huge impact if you get some some inspiration with with recipes and stuff
1: oh absolutely and if you've got a shopping list so say for example you know Michael, your hypothetical 70.3 athlete. If I send you a shopping list and you've got the ingredients in the fridge or you've got a store cupboard and you've got rice and you've got pasta, you've got chickpeas, you've got top tomatoes, all you need essentially is some, some fresh protein and some veggies and you can make a really healthy nutritious meal but if you've climbed off the turbo after 90 minutes and you go to shop in your local supermarket and you're hungry, you'll just eat any old rubbish and that's where the thing is, that reactive eating is probably the biggest mistake so I would say that if if you've got a list and you've got the ingredients you know it's it's no different to if you've got a busy day you've got an eight or nine hour day and you know you've got some intervals to do on the turbo you've got your turbo set up you've got your bike on there you've got your towel you've got you've got all your stuff you just jump on but if you've got to think about it you've lost that moment really so yeah. it's yeah it's planning
0: yeah absolutely um let's jump into discussing some key principles of nutrition for triathletes and endurance athletes and uh, i was thinking maybe maybe you can give a few as an overview give a few do's and don'ts and and if we start with within training nutrition uh what would you say are the key principles there
1: um i think the main thing is to make sure you you're fueling for the work required and often i hear this term a lot of of fasted sessions and 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 it, for me a session is something that involves quality or hard work it's not necessarily just turning your legs over and i think that's something under-fueling key sessions is something that I think is done all oh too often. And then they'll go into a state of depletion and just graze for the rest of the day. So I think it's really important that you almost like you would lay your kit out for the weather. You almost think, right, this is what I'm going to have to eat today to get through this session. You know, if you have the the mindset that every single training session has a purpose. So you as a coach will put in stuff for repair and recovery, people for practicing race pace and then stuff that's over and above that That that's what you'll do as a coach if you think about your food in the same way that is this going to help fuel this session this is going to help me repair or recover so i would say that that's something that's really really important um every single training session does have a purpose and you need to be careful that you're not following what somebody else is doing on social media or you're just looking at it and you've got to fuel for the work required um, i also think having Using say again, I'm I'm saying training peaks as an example. If you actually use like the diary within training peaks and you take notes of how certain foods make you feel or how you performed after certain sessions, again, I think that's really, really important. You know, I'll I'll use a I tend to use a lot of examples of things I do myself because I find it very hard to recommend or be passionate about anything in performance sport unless I've tried it myself. And like last night, I was only going on to do four by five minutes. On the turbo right so relatively straightforward Um, but I knew that I was going to the gym afterwards so for that set that ride right. it was five minutes on five minutes off by four and what I'm doing is building up the power as each one goes on so it's only 20 minutes away. I took 90 grams of carbs for that for that yep. for that, that block that I was on but I didn't eat until later on. And I made sure that I wasn't going into the gym depleted and I was finishing this session that I wasn't completely on my knees. And I think that's something that's really, really important. I knew what I was going to eat afterwards. I knew what I was going to have for breakfast today. And I think that overall planning for that work is really important because theoretically, theoretically 20 minutes of work, it's not that much, but it's the level of intensity that it's over my FTP. It's, it's hard work. So I think that's, that's something that's really, really important. And also to look at the amount of carbs that you're taking in during key sessions. I'll talk about that a little bit more and, and how to sort of track that. And I think that's something that's really important. But look at the work and look at what's involved. That's something, again, it, I always use the analogy of, of driving. You know, If you were driving from London to Edinburgh, you'd never set off with a quarter of a tank of fuel any more than you need to put, you know, fifty litres of fuel in your car if you're going to nip around to the supermarket. You've got to, you've got to look at the the physical stresses and then you've got to make sure you've got enough fuel in the tank for it. Underfueling cracks me. You know, I'll go out I'll I'll go out with athletes sometimes and I'll watch what they've got on the bike or how much they're eating or drinking. And it, it cracks me I'll wear out for three hours with fifteen hundred meters of climbing. And they'll have they'll have one bottle on the bike and you're going, well what is that? How's that work? <laughs> How does it, and it doesn't work because you know they're kidding himself on oh, i don't need to have that much and then they'll get in and they'll just be eating for the next five or six hours so yeah day-to-day training look at the work and then plan accordingly
0: yeah yeah and it's something for me uh within my coaching i i've more recently i guess in the last year or so started to more and more at least for for certain athletes that i think need that guidance, always put in a minimum number of carbohydrates per hour that they need to consume based on based on the session. So sometimes it might be 60, sometimes it might be 90. And if it's an easy run or, or short, short, easy bike, it I might not put in anything like they can get through 45 minutes and and, and that's fine. But but I think that's something yeah that I've become more aware of like yeah. just how important it is to uh to always fuel for the work record And there's in in the scientific world as well, there's been more and more interesting work done on the concept. I'm going to probably misremember the term, but it's something like within-day energy availability that you can not just if you if you add up all of your energy intake over the day, you might be perfectly fine. But but if you go for a period of three or four hours where you actually run the tank really low, as you say then yeah. that in itself can be very hurtful for you. And there's more and more scientific evidence coming out. It's a topic that I do want to uh, to talk about on the podcast in the future from a scientific sense. But but yeah, just for listeners to be aware that that is a concept that's out there, The yeah, basically how every hour counts within the day.
1: Yeah, I think it's also as well, and it's something that's really difficult to quantify is external stresses on energy levels. Now, you and I know that if you, you know, say if you and I sat on a, on a bike and we, we rode our bike at 300 watts, so we went and ran at, you know, kilometers at three minutes. We know what that would do, but what about lack of sleep? What about external stresses of work and general life? And that has a huge impact. And I, I know personally I'm hypersensitive to sleep. If I don't have sleep, I need to go to the top end of fueling zone to get through certain sessions. And that's something that's really, really difficult. And um, I don't know what your thoughts are uh, you know, on, on wearable tech, like aura rings or whoop bands or whatever, but I can see sometimes the most stressful and the days that i have so much going on are days that i'm not actually on the bike or training it's quite remarkable so again we don't know what the impact that is and you might not have a massive calorie deficit but again if you're having to concentrate a lot the only fuel your brain can use is carbohydrate and we see that in formula one like you think okay physically they're sat down but you've got to make split second decisions and carbohydrate is 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 brain food and there's so much around that that we don't know and we're making it up as we go along. And, you know, that's why I think it's, it's something that's really important that if you can fuel your sessions, then hopefully the rest of what life will fall into place. But sometimes you can just feel absolutely exhausted for no reason. You know, your training load can be really low. And, you know, I had a conversation with a professional athlete this morning who was exhausted today, absolutely exhausted, rest day. So he's taken the kids to school. He's walked the dog. He's cleaned the house. He's gone and serviced the car. And it's more—it's more exhausting than doing a six-hour base ride. And he's absolutely wrecked by lunchtime because he's—he's he's not doing the thing that he naturally does. And mentally, these things are all—you know—he's making small talk in the school playground. And as an introvert, that's actually really tiring for that athlete. So, yeah, it's—it's it's a fascinating field, I think. You know.
0: Yeah. No. Ab- absolutely. Uh, and I've, I do think that in—in in the last few years, there's. There's a positive trend of more awareness and knowledge among athletes. I think about at least not what we had. I don't know three, four, five years ago of intentionally <laughs> underfueling, almost or not, yeah. not intentionally underfueling, but but trying to basically get shortcuts by by skipping fueling during training and 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 a- hoping that that would improve performance, which we now know pretty clearly that it doesn't. Yeah. But but I still think that the the gap between knowledge about the importance of fueling in training and actually applying it in the day to day is is there like some athletes do it very well some athletes might on a theoretical level realize that yeah it's it's great fueling during training is great but they actually don't do it or they do it to a more limited extent than they should be doing it
1: yeah but there's will kind of run into stuff that we'll no doubt cover later on that that so many athletes are obsessed about weight and we should come back to that because i think it's a metric or something it's a guide and um, you know, if I look at overall energy intake throughout the day, you know, I, I think that that's something that's really, really important. And, and as you know yourself, training is normally consisted of easy, medium and hard. Now, what is easy, medium, hard? Now, if you go down the sort of coggin scale of one to seven of, if you know your training zones, that's great. All right. But what about residual fatigue and what I found? And I, I know you're, you could be skeptical about say apps that track your metrics type. Like, so. Let's go My Fitness pal it's cheap, it's it's free. How good is the tech on it? I know for a fact that if I track my metrics, and we've got two two ways of tracking metrics. We, we've we got MyFitnessPal, which I use as a day-to-day, just as a rough guideline. And then we've also got a bit of software that we use when we're doing recipe development or we're doing any staff high-end recipe development that we need micro-detail, a platform called Nutritix. And it's used an awful lot in... Um, in sort of sports science. So is uh, is, has got more detail than you'll ever need. So I know for a fact, if I'm doing hard work, as in hard work, as in Tabata intervals, sweet spa, overgeared work, whatever the hell nastiness that I'm doing, I know that over the course of a day, my overall carbohydrate intake is normally about 70% of my daily intake. And that's on and off the bike. So it'd be 70% mm. carbs, be 20% protein and 10% fat. Getting in fat is never an easy one. If I'm doing a medium day, so that for me would be tempo work. Uh, it could be long, slow ride, could be four or five hours, heart rate between 108 118. So that kind of that, that kind of base zone, I know it goes to 60 30 10. So 60% carbs, 30% protein, 10% fat. On rest days, it's almost flipped on its side that I'm 40% carbs, 60% protein, 10% fat. And I know that from a period of time. So when I'm putting together my meal plans, I'll make sure that I try and go along those parameters. Now that works for me as a 50-year-old athlete that burns a shitload of carbs. So I know that I can take on 100 to 110 to 120 grams of carbs per hour when I'm going hard. That's kind of the zones that I use for, like, for for the fueling when the hard work's required. However, the caveat in that is that I think you've actually got to look at multiple days. You've got to look at residual fatigue. And you know, I I got an email in from you every day about you know training camps. You know, people go in training camps, and I think they underfuel them so often. You know, the facts are: if you look at a stage race, you know, or a stage race for an athlete, a, a recreational athlete, it's a training camp because it's multiple hard days back to back. Female athletes are taking on 8 to 10 grams of carbs per kilo body weight per day. Male athletes, 10 to twelve grams of carbohydrate per kilo of body weight per day. Now, if you measure that out, you put it in front of you on the table, you'd be like, oh my God, but that's what we're seeing if they're going to look to perform day after day. And hard, I think, is really difficult. What's hard? Like It's hard just going out with a group that's a wee bit faster than you, or it's hard multiple days, or it's hard... 2 hours sleep deficit a night. I don't know what hard is. And what I'll say to you is if you can look at those training blocks, and I've just come back. I was um, I was fortunate that I was in Girona doing some work. I did 10 days in Girona. I did 45 hours on the bike. And I had carbs, carb-heavy every single meal. So I was having carbs for breakfast, carbs for lunch. I was taking 70 to 90 grams of carbs per hour. And I know that I, I was initially that shock. I was fatigued at the start of the block. By the end of it, my whoop was giving me greens all throughout my recovery was really good, and I did my best twenty minute power on day nine of ten because I made sure that I wasn't constantly running into deficit. so I think if you can use you know say for example, even it is is my fitness pal just to get an idea of the macros of carbohydrate, fat, and protein and that's something I think that you need to try and learn yourself um you know th- you're seeing now certainly male world tour riders of 70 kilos are taking around 110 120 grams of carbs per hour that's something that five years ago i would have been 40 50 grams less than that 80 80 used to be the benchmark 100 now it's about 120 so i think just look at all of your the, and also the stuff that you have off the bike i think is really important that is really yeah. really important and it's uh yeah
0: I think I think the uh, there's well first of all there was there was a lot of great information there uh, so let's see I have a couple of follow-ups or or comments first of all regarding my fitness pal that's uh, personally my perspective on it is uh, every once in a while I'll try to to track it for ideally I would do it for three days sometimes I just can't do it after two days because it's too much of a hassle but but two yeah. days I think I'm I'm pretty fine with like I get an idea and and I basically I recalibrate my intuition for how much I'm getting in when i'm eating my the way i normally do during a normal training training block and how much is carb how much is protein and yeah i I think that the uh, getting getting enough carbs getting enough proteins that's really what you want to look for when you're when you're tracking i i think at least for most athletes I i don't know if you disagree then do let me know but i think for for most people it's probably not not at all necessary or even useful to to track every single day but to have a calibration period when you basically get more self-awareness of what what you're what you're doing and uh, can correct things. That's that's a really useful way of of, of using that, that kind of tracking.
1: I a hundred percent agree. I go in blocks of using my fitness pal and you talk about self awareness I think that's something that that's 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 becoming less and less prevalent, and it's a skill set that I think that is, that is really important because nowadays, you know, we can track how many hours we sleep, what type of sleep we've got, our left left right leg balance, and I think a lot of it is great, and it's great for you as coaches because you can, you know, you can look at an athlete's platform remotely and you can go, ah they're doing this, that, or the other, and they're sleeping really well, and they've got this amount of REM, and the leg balance is fantastic. You've got all these numbers, but that self awareness is something that that, that that's Something that I think is lacking, and you can't teach it. You know, you've got to. It, you, it's got to be through experience. And I would agree. You know, my fitness pal does involve a lot of faff. You know, especially if you're going to add up all your ingredients, and that kind of and that yeah. can then to lead lead to obsessive behaviour around food because you start weighing stuff out. That is literally your first foot over the doorstep of having some form of disordered eating. And you know, it's always an elephant in the room, and we should talk about it. But it's something that's really important. So what I would tend to do is try and simplify it. So if you think, okay, well, what, how do you feel as a person? You know, What are your energy levels like? You know, Do you want to get out the door? Do you have sniffles? Are you sleeping well? Those are all metrics. by as a human element to it. And I also think, you know, if if I gave you a plan, Michael, even a three-day rolling plan and said, right, here's a medium day, and a medium day could be really easy, and I'm going to rattle it off the top of my head. Birch and for breakfast, 50 grams of oats, 50 grams of Greek yogurt, 50 ml of milk, 50 ml of apple ju- juice, Okay, put some seeds and nuts to get your good fats and stuff in there. That's a good breakfast, okay? Lunch could be, oh, you're busy because you've got to get on the office, a tin of tuna, chopped avocado, and a bag of pre-cooked rice. Mix that with some salad. You've got protein, fat, and carbohydrate. Your snack could be a bagel with nut butter and jam. That's it. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. And dinner could be some slow release carbohydrates, either rice or couscous. You make a Moroccan tagine up, so you've got tin tomatoes, chickpeas some spices peppers and some protein some chicken and some fresh herbs that's it that's a medium day and that gives you protein carbs and fat all throughout your day all the store cupboard ingredients that you can pick up you go i've got a hard day we'll have a banana and a tablespoon of honey with breakfast have a banana at lunchtime you know have some baked sweet potatoes with dinner and you can suddenly take your carbohydrate intake up by another 30 percent so if you can get and we don't need it's a bit like you don't need 50 Tabata type sessions. You don't need 10 different sweet spot sessions. It's a bit like you don't need 10 different breakfasts or 10 different lunches or 10 different main meals. And I think people run the risk of overcomplicating. And I think if you can keep it simple and achievable and you know, right, this is a low carbohydrate breakfast. So this is a high carb breakfast. Or if you put your notes and training piece, go, do you know what? I was at top end of zone today. I was cracking today. I was pinging. And then you look back and go, well, I had that for breakfast and I had that for dinner job done you don't need to overanalyze it and that self-awareness i think is something you know I, I, I work on a lot and i think it's really important but yeah don't get don't start weighing don't start weighing your food all the time that's 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 dangerous and that's yeah. something I'll, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later on So i've got some stuff around that i want to talk about with you but i think it's uh for sure yeah.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think I think yeah. On, just on that, like, if 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 you do that, when you do that, let's say calibration period, then you have to do it with going in with the exact right mindset of like, what is the objective? That you're just trying to understand what you're currently doing, and yeah, not 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 from the perspective of oh, this is my. Key to lose weight or, or something
1: uh, I, I, absolutely, and I think the other thing as well is I always even even at the highest level apply eighty twenty rule to food eighty percent good stuff, twenty percent bad stuff, and I hate the term bad stuff because nothing's bad than moderation, but if it's red yeah. wine, if it's chocolate, if it's cheese, it doesn't matter what it is if that's your thing and if you can get through a block and you can get through a three month or a sixteen week training block, and you can say eighty per- I had eighty percent of this was fit for purpose, and you know what. I had that bit of chocolate. Or, you know, as a family, we went out and we had a pizza. That's all about moderation. And that's about having a healthy relationship with food. And at the very highest level, you'll see that. That is something that's really important. And whether it's that dirty burger or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. Just make sure you get that balance in your life.
0: Yeah and that's something that I was going to talk about as well uh, especially with you coming from uh, a Michelin star restaurant background like the uh, th- food is not just nutrition it's it's enjoyment uh, not it's it's enjoyment for the food but also the social aspect of it and and same with let's say if you have a wine or a beer uh, or like chocolate or candy with your kids when you go to an amusement park or something like those things all matter and and if they psychologically make a positive impact then uh, that's then it's uh that's just one more reason to to have those twenty percent of um like less less fit for purpose purpose food or whatever you want to call
1: it. Uh, exactly. And, and and I think there's an also there's a thing for like non-specific training. I I go out and I like just take my gravel bike out and I, I don't even take a Wahoo or anything with me. I just go out and I ride my bike and take yeah. pictures for Instagram and mentally That is so good for you because, you know, again, being a time trialist, looking at your metrics, I'm hiding behind my hands. Everything is, is all about drag and CDA and watts per kilo and all that stuff. It sucks the joy out of it a lot of the time, whereas there's a lot to be said for, you know, just going out and enjoying a meal. Like last night, I'll be honest with you, last night I did my turbo session. I went to the gym, had this holistic approach. There's a new burger restaurant open in town. I went and had a, a, a burping Ron's Big Ron double pate with fries last night because, you know what, I had quite a hard day and I couldn't be bothered cooking. Even at my level, I couldn't be bothered cooking. I thought, should we go for a dirty burger? So we're in a dirty burger with cheese. Within the context of the week, that's really good, you know, and I think that's something that's really important. And, you know, when, when, when you look at, like, the Michelin star environment, you know, that high-performing team in that environment and you see the joy in people's faces and you've seen how the table brings people together – and it's something really special. And I think the social element around food is something that, that, that's kind of lacking these days. You know, people, and the, the, the ironic thing is people will buy a pre-prepared meal or ready meal and they'll sit in front of the television watching people cook, which just blows my mind. You know, cooking, it's, uh, it's mad. Whereas it almost seems to be that the cooking from scratch or cooking everything is seen as a middle class hobby these days. Whereas if you look at, say, your grandparents' generation, i'm sure they weren't buying stuff in they were making bread they were you know they probably had eggs from the chickens that were running about in the garden and they did everything from scratch whereas now cooking from scratch wow that's yeah that's that's middle class that's a that's a posh hobby it shouldn't be should be the other way around
0: yeah yeah totally um let's go back to the the key key principles we got a lot of stuff done there but uh Yet, if, if there's anything else that we didn't already mention in terms of the day-to-day nutrition outside of training, uh, of, let's say, do's and don'ts that that okay. you see, what what would you say there?
1: Um, I would say I wouldn't. Uh, the two things that I do is, you know, people get, I'm more concerned about macros as in your fat, your protein, and carbs for training. So we've covered that. I think that's really important. The micronutrients, all your vitamins and minerals. Theoretically, if you're having a balanced diet, as in you're eating your fruit and your veg, and you're getting your protein from different sources, as in fish and meat and pulses and dairy, I wouldn't worry about it. You know, In the Western world, deficiencies, actual deficiencies are rare. They are rare. And, And that then leads on nicely to supplementation. The supplementation business is a multi-billion business, and I'll be honest with you, I think there's a lot of snake oil out there, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know whether it does any good at all. Personally, I've tried every supplement in the world, I've tried to measure it, I've tried to see what effects I have on my health and well-being. I can't tell you what works and what doesn't work, and if you read the literature, if you look at the proper nerdy sports scientists, and I would say, you know, bear in mind, Instagram isn't the place you go for these places but if you look at if you look online if you look at say the mom Oscar Jekindrup who is god as far as I'm concerned with sports supplementation and, and knowledge around this there's very little hard facts around you know supplementation and what good it does to you the first and foremost thing you need to think of and you you have this is mine as any practitioner in sport you've got to think the worst thing that could happen for an athlete that you work with is they fail a drugs test majority of failed tests are from contaminated supplements now i'm fortunate or unfortunate that the world that i work in you know i've got to have my anti-doping accreditation and all that so the rules are that the advice always you would give to athletes is if in doubt don't take it because there's a risk with taking supplementation and personally if i'm traveling or if i'm under any periods of high stress i take health span elite i'm not sponsored by them i buy it with my own money it's uh it's um it's a product that's been batch tested. I take a multivitamin. I take cod liver oil and I take a probiotic when I'm traveling. Just because I know my diet might not be great. Um, they come in a, a box that gives you a weak supply and I use those. And I'll also take vitamin C and zinc again when I'm, when I'm under high stress or I'm traveling. The rest of the stuff, I'm not convinced. I take beta alanine before races. It makes me tingling. Can I give you a performance benefit? No. Done beetroot. Gives me an upset stomach not convinced so I would say I wouldn't worry about supplementation unless you've got something fundamentally wrong with you I think if your diet's good then don't worry about it first and foremost don't fail a test that is something that's really important and, and you imagine the implications as a professional athlete firstly that's it as a, as a recreational athlete, can you imagine going in the office on a Monday morning and you failed the drugs test because you've taken some cod liver oil or iron supplements. You've got cheap, man. Can you Imagine you would look such a fool. It's just they, it's and they not do they it.
0: do they do test amateurs like it's not that often, but they do. Like I heard about it in I, don't, I can't remember even if it was Kona or Saint George recently, but but there's always testing even for amateur or not always, but there's testing even for amateur athletes. So so it is like I know that many athletes think that uh, this doesn't apply to me i'm not a professional but but it it does and, and oh. you're, abso- you're absolutely right like if you if you have to walk into the office and they ask how did your iron man go and, and you say i was disqualified i failed a drug test then that's yeah that, that would just oh. be terrible devastating
1: uh well we, we've got a couple of clients we've got one who's a teacher in a in a private girls school she was tested at our age group event fairly recently and like I think she was fourth or something like that, so they weren't even testing the podium. And certainly in in domestically in the UK, there was quite a lot of amateur testing a few years ago. I haven't seen any testers for a couple of years, to be honest, at races. But it's just not worth it. And and again, you've got to look at risk versus reward. Is this going to make you a better athlete? Arguably, it might be one percent at best. But there's no there's no slam dunkers in there. To be honest, Michael, there's none. Can you think of any any, any supplement that is going to be right? I'm going to take this. And it's worth it. I, I can't. I can't I think mean, of anything. Yeah,
0: no. But c- caffeine is good for a lot of for a lot of people. Uh, you have to obviously get get used to using it and used in the right amount yeah. and the right timing. Uh, I have an episode about that. I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. There is a great paper an uh, IOC. Uh, an ioc position statement about supplementation and and they basically go through all of the supplements and list some that are useful and i think vitamin d is one that a lot of uh northern hemisphere athletes generally benefit from because a lot of people end up being deficient in vitamin d so that's uh, that's something i take and and i take iron because i tend to get low on iron so but that's tested and and doctor prescribed iron essentially so um so yeah it's it's if you have a specific deficiency i i have to challenge you a bit though because when you list the things that you take that's quite a lot considering that you don't believe in supplements
1: <laughs> no no I, I will take them when i'm traveling if i if, okay. I'm, if I'm away with yeah. work and i know if i'm at work that i might not be able to eat you know so the the, the fact is a multivitamin cod liver oil and a probiotic and then yeah. vitamin c with zinc those are just trying to make sure i don't get ill when i'm away because yeah my diet when i'm working ironically is not the best that it could be so that that's it and the other things i've tried loads of different things and i thought i don't see any benefit other than i've got less money to spend on bike bits that's it too yeah. <laughs> that's it i don't i don't get it so and the caffeine one um you know caffeine i do take before i don't i don't really see caffeine as a supplement but it probably is um i do take caffeine gum before races and i'll take caffeine gels um if i'm doing longer rides so i do take that i don't really see that as a supplement but it probably is. But, yeah, yeah
0: I, I would, even if you look at the IOC consensus statement, then even even carbohydrate is a supplement when you take it as a gel or as sports drink. So, so okay. that, that so that's a supplement that works <laughs> that we can agree
1: I, on. I, I, I would, I completely agree. Yeah, I would agree. So, yeah, but I would say that those, those are the day to day things that I would I would avoid and 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 not worry about. Just say, yeah. get a balanced diet, and just yeah. You know, even if you take old fashioned advice of having x amount of fruit and veg you know is it five to eight pieces of fruit and veg a day if you're doing that and you're you're not having too many processed when i mean processed you know artificially prepared foods and you're getting your protein from different sources in honesty, you shouldn't have too many worries it's when you do these exclusion diets etc that that you're going to have issues but i think that would be the day-to-day stuff that i would be um, more concerned about
0: yeah so can you talk about that a little bit uh diets uh exclusions and obviously can be both from um, something like a health 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 perspective, like somebody's intolerant to something, or or it can be voluntary. But what 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 are your thoughts on on different diets, and and also for people that that are that they did really need to be on some sort of diet or exclusion diet? Then what things do they need to do to basically compensate for the lesser variety or lesser choice that they have?
1: It's 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 a really interesting topic. Now I've been I've been fortunate that I've been working in food since probably you were born. Well, I did, yeah. when did I start, 15? I've been 35 years plus working in food. I go 20 years ago. Exclusion diets didn't exist. You know, and allergies or intolerances didn't exist. People didn't like stuff. But nowadays you can't say you don't like something. You've got to have some intolerance to it. So it's become very trendy and it's become very popular. And um, I, I think if you've got something that's medically prescribed as in whether it's dairy or gluten or your celiac that is very different to saying well i've got a mild intolerance to it and that that is a very different thing so i I take a lot of exclusion diets with a pinch of salt because i've seen all sorts of things from for example with british cycling we had two athletes who were both podium athletes so olympic level athletes and one of the guys um Brilliant athlete, great guy. He had a huge stress reaction when he was at races. And he had a, it was a, a diagnosed thing, a FODMAP diet, which is a real nightmare to work with. You put him in a training camp, didn't exist. Put him in a race scenario, he had IBS come up. It was stress-related. And that was something that was really difficult to manage because as soon as you put him in a high-pressure environment, his IBS flared up. That's something that's really unusual. So the, the main ones are, are dairy. Um, there are people that are intolerant to dairy. There's nowadays a hell of a lot of really good non-dairy products available. You go to any supermarket in in Europe, you can get milk, cheese, you can get everything. I would just say be aware that just because something's an exclusion, it doesn't mean it's healthy. Because if you say look at, say a butter substitute, that's margarine. That's what it is. That's horrendous. You'd almost be better not having it than having a butter substitute. And I think you have to be aware that there's a lot of bad stuff that's jumping on this exclusion bandwagon so dairy free you can basically replace everything nowadays in most supermarkets from egg substitutes even though you know eggs don't come from cows they're always banded under dairy free um and i think that's something you can do gluten is a a really interesting one and i've got a bit of a an anecdotal story with that i personally thought that that was rubbish and i about it must have been five or six years ago and, you know, as, as a triathlete, you run. And I was a runner first and foremost. And I always had runner's stomach. I was on that stomach that I'd always, you know, if I was ever going out running, especially if I was doing intervals, I'd always have a dodgy stomach. So I'd always be in the bushes. This is quite graphic. But you know what? You, I don't need to elaborate on this. And uh, I had a girlfriend, a new sparkly girlfriend about six years ago who was gluten-free. And I said, ah, it's nonsense. I'll trial it. So I trialed it for a month. And I was absolutely devastated devastated because I did not want this to work so we talk about the placebo effect of products I was the anti-placebo effect this was going to make no difference to me at all and within about five days of removing gluten from my diet the difference in my energy levels my physical stomach function how I felt in myself was night and day now I do not test intolerant to gluten at all or wheat nothing I don't I have got no, but I'll tell you factually, it makes a huge difference to me. Um, So obviously, glutens and stuff like soy sauce, it's in pasta, which is the worst for my stomach. It's horrendous for me. So if you think before, I go to races and I'd have your typical high carb pasta meal, have a really bad stomach. Pasta destroys my stomach, always does. Um, And I I took it out of my diet and I would say I'm 90% gluten free now. Mm. I don't show up on any testing. However, if you start reading up on it and you go looking down that rabbit hole, there's chemicals that are used in the harvesting of wheat, which can have a huge effect. So I, cannot be tole- I can be tolerant to wheat and gluten, but I get reaction to the chemicals that are in it. And if you look at, say, an ancient grain like spelt, for example, the farming of spelt and the manufacturing of spelt, they don't really use a lot of chemicals. I have no reaction to spelt flour at all, nothing. But wheat flour destroys my stomach, but I'm not a tolerant to it. So I would say if you've got any doubt, first of all, you can go and pay one of these many amazing companies to do intolerance testing, which is hugely expensive, and quite often they're creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Take it out of your diet, monitor it for two weeks, then reintroduce it to your diet. If you get a reaction, keep it out. It's as simple as that. That's what I would say with certainly wheat, uh, with gluten, um, I'm better without gluten. That's it. Plain and simply, yeah. I'm not tolerant to it. So those are the two main ones. Um, we then go down the Pandora's box of, of veganism, which is something I think is really, really important to talk about and it's it's one that I get asked about a hell of a lot and obviously in the last few years you've had Game Changers on Netflix, which was a really interesting documentary, and you've also had Sea Spiracy, which are two worth watching. So again, if you can assume that any factual documentary that's on netflix is there to generate interest and provoke reaction so let's assume that 40 percent of what we're seeing is factually correct and the rest is smoke screens and mirrors that's probably a fair assumption because it's opinions we're talking about here high performance sport you can google this while you're online name me 10 world-class endurance athletes who are plant-based any sport you like i don't mind we've got all day name me them you can't
0: um, I, I, I've been I've been thinking about this uh, many times, and and you're right. I can't. I'm not even I'm not even trying to do it off the cuff, but yeah, yeah. yeah
1: but you can't, and there's good reason behind yeah. because there's no evidence to suggest that a plant based diet has got any performance benefit. Now, if I go back to and I'm, I'm I'm digging myself a hole here, but I've got the shovel to get myself back out. If I go back to when I worked with British Cycling, I was with them for a number of years, and we've got unlimited resources unlimited resources so we can we, you know we, the, the infrastructure there's 240 people work there yeah there's there was nothing that they could find that would say having a plant-based or an exclusion diet has got any performance benefit because they, they would be doing it um within the whole olympic program there was one athlete um who was vegetarian for ethical reasons because she trained as a vet and she preferred to save animals as opposed to eating. Them. that was it everybody else ate everything they all had milk cheese They all had everything, that extreme. Ethically and environmentally, we don't need to have that argument. Ethically, farming practices are are hugely variable, and the ethics side of it, we don't need to have that conversation because the ethics around animal farming and the stuff is horrific, to be honest. Um, Environmentally, it has an impact as well. So those things have been proven beyond that. But purely performance-based, there's nothing that suggests that that it would give you any performance. What I would suggest you do, and again, I I, I look at these things as a human, first of all, um, is eat good quality meat, make sure it's free range, make sure it's organic, go to the farm, etc. I eat meat less often as a result of probably social awareness, actually looking at the environmental impact. We probably have a day, well, certainly I have a vegan day probably once or twice a week. And I'll have a vegetarian day another day. Um, so I'm only eating meat maybe four times a week now, as opposed to I was eating it twice a day, seven days a week before. Um, and I would just say, be aware of what you're doing. Also, if you look at the people that are listening to this podcast, Michael, nobody's listening to this podcast because they want to get slower. Okay, this isn't lighthearted banter and it's not a couple of lads down a pub talk, you know. It's not one of those podcasts. So the generally that your your audience will be people that want to improve their performance through sport. If they're going to any event and they've invested heavily in coaching, travel, you know, they they've ticked the box to get there, they've invested a hell of a lot both financially, emotionally, physically in getting to the start line. What they don't want to do is get to the key race, which could be in middle America or central Europe and have to worry about where the dinner's coming from. So I would say that, and I advise a lot of the the athletes I work with, it's, it's, it's really common now that, that people are aware of plastics, they're aware of travel, they're aware of the whole environment, is have a flexitarian approach is when you're at home and you can, you can choose to make better choices, do it. But when you're at races, just go with what you know works do you know what I mean? Because if you try going to Belgium or France or Spain and you say, well, I'm gonna have a vegetarian diet, you will be depleted. You know, what protein you're gonna get? Do you know what I mean? It's those types of things that you have to worry about. So I, I get the ethics, but from purely a performance benefit, there's 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 not an awful lot there. And don't yeah. don't don't get to your key event that you've sweated and you've you've worked really hard to get there and you've made a huge investment to get there and be worrying about your dinner more than your performance. That's something I would say just pick your battles and during the off season you know during the off season make 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 those good decisions make those ethical decisions but don't get go, don't go down a rabbit hole saying it's a performance because it doesn't stack up it just unfortunately it doesn't as yet yeah you know, so yeah i I would say that would be my 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 soapbox moment on that um
0: so when for vegetarians or vegans they are obviously different levels of things that you need to do to to make those different diets work but but i'm sure we have many listeners of both of those diets so what would be some tips for each of them that you would say other than you know having the flexible approach when it comes to to racing and, and being abroad and so on but but in the in the day to day are there any other things that come up when you're working with clients um, with I, those I,
1: diets? I would say you know regular blood testing is something that's really important because the Because you're excluding, you know, some pretty chunky food groups there, I would say just, just be aware that I would maybe just build into your, into your planning that I would be looking at having regular blood tests because the problem now. You know, I take you to a supermarket. This is one of the things I love to do. I'd love to, if you're ever in the UK, I'd love to take you to a supermarket and just walk around. I've done this with some of the athletes who go, Well, 90% of that stuff is absolute garbage. That is not for you. So if I took you to the vegan section, now you've got this fake meat, you've got all these you can have everything. you know have fake bacon. What's in it? And if you look at the back of these packets, you go, Jesus Christ, what is this? And there's this cornucopia of chemicals. The other one that's in a lot of these products is pea protein. Pea protein's never batch tested. So you go back to your, you know, failing the drugs test. And this was a, it was a BC writer that told me about pea protein. Now, I didn't know this. It's probably about three years ago she told me. Pea protein, mate, that that again could fail you a test. Is, is just get your protein sources as varied as you can, mix it up get regular blood tests and supplementation is something again, you maybe want to look down, but it's a very individual basis because it's going to depend on the athlete. And I think that's something that's, that's really, really important, but regular blood testing is probably the main thing. There's
0: experts. in How how often would that be? Four four, times a year? Two times a year?
1: Yeah, I would say three times, uh, three, four times a year, every three months. Like there's, there's very good companies. There's certainly one in the UK called fourth edge that do a subscription blood testing service, which will give you all the metrics you need. Um, the other one that we, we didn't talk and again, there's experts out in there. I'm not an expert in this because I don't pretend to be because I don't go down the street. If somebody comes to me and says, "We we do have some clients who are are vegetarian, and we have some clients who are vegan." I, it's just the caveat is look, just be careful. That would be it. The other ones we haven't talked about. I put it down in a little list is the low carb thing and this this fasted diet that a lot of people go on low carb is something again i would often be careful of because what people are doing is they're putting their body under stress unnecessarily and it'll come down to it's a way of losing weight you know reduce the amount of carbohydrate by default you're going to lose weight you're creating a deficit i'd be really careful with it and also fasted training when you essentially you're taking a meal You know, if you speak to a lot of coaches with that, you have to be so careful, again, because you're putting your body under a lot of stress. So for the listeners out there that don't know how this would work, what people would suggest, maybe is you do a hard session in the evening, your meal afterwards would be purely protein. You would then go out in the morning off the back of a black coffee and you'd do anything between an hour to 90 minutes fasted, just with water, and then you would feel normally. The problem with that, Firstly i'm terrible at it because I get grumpy if i'm hungry, I get really angry and I get really i'm not a nice person to be around so any benefits negated but I think the stresses you potentially put on your body i don't i don't get the benefit I don't get the benefit versus reward I don't get um and I don't know you you read about this stuff all the time and I always think if I was going to do ten things that would be so far off the bottom of my list it would be not true. The other diet that we do use and we practice and i'm a huge fan of is a low res or low fiber diet before races probably quite useful for athletes that you're working with because predominantly they're doing single events this is something i first became aware of back in 2012 wiggins was doing it when he won the tour de france and essentially what you're doing before key events is you're reducing the amount of fiber in your diet your body can theoretically have up to two kilos of undigested fiber in the gut and if you take fiber out, so fibers in all the healthy foods that you have on a day-to-day basis, so fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, grains, they all contain fiber. So if you can reduce the amount of fiber and essentially flush yourself out, you first of all, you've got a weight benefit. There can be a bit of water retention and you just feel kind of ready. Um, we tested it with a group of world tour riders with Canyon SRAM last year. I'm not, I'm not breaking any confidentiality by saying this. And we had I think 14, 14 riders at a training camp. And we took fiber out of the diet before they were doing some pretty hardcore testing. And out of the 14 riders, I think 10 felt significant benefits from reducing the amount of fiber. So what the protocol would be from that is 48 hours prior from event, you'd have say rice, white rice, Porridge for breakfast, you'd have, say, rice noodles, white rice noodles with grilled salmon, sweet chili salmon for lunch. And then your main meal could be rice-based pasta, which is gluten-free pasta. Grilled zucchini, courgette, that's low in fiber. Chicken, a basic tomato sauce, like a pizzazza sauce is fairly low in fiber. And then your dessert would be watermelon, because watermelon is low in fiber. Honey and Greek yogurt. So you're getting carbs, you're getting protein. And if you repeat that for two days, it makes a massive difference. And you guess, well, what difference does it make? trial it and see um in the context um pasta wheat pasta versus white rice wheat pasta has predominantly got 12 grams of fiber per 100 grams versus almost none in white rice so it's mm. taking all the good stuff out your diet so low fiber diet huge fan for maybe two days i have heard of world tour teams that are doing it for stage races it's not healthy it may, you'll go well off it but it's not for long-term health but if you've got a key event try a low fiber diet for two days low res low fiber call it what you want that works in my humble opinion you feel yeah. ready yeah
0: yeah that's really you... interesting i i have i mean i i generally the day the, at latest the day before the, i would say the two days before the race i i do uh drink de- decrease fiber especially the day before but try to really minimize it um and and veggies and so on. that Two days before, I would I would remove yeah. or or at least minimize. But I haven't really done it as systematically or with uh, yeah with with yeah completely completely yeah. Elim- or eliminating as much as possible. So that would be interesting to uh, try. It,
1: it works. We've done it with a number of athletes, and it works. And even water retention. We had one athlete I worked with who was really bad at needing to pee when they were on the bike, like really bad, like twenty minutes in, forty minutes in, and that almost went. That almost disappeared, but also from a weight perspective, that like I personally will do it even before a ten-mile time trial, I can lose a kilo and a half, even if I'm in shape, and be mm-hmm. carved up to the eyeballs, be absolutely pinging with it. So I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's worth trying. And and if you're away again, you know people go, oh, how do I do it when I'm away? Get a little rice cooker. You can do it all in a rice cooker. So white rice, like risotto rice. So the the breakfast that we that I that I love is to use risotto rice, white sugar, and then uh, light coconut milk. Mm. bang that in a rice cooker high in carbs loads of fat and just easy to digest some vanilla and cinnamon in there to get it to taste real good and then you're going and then rice noodles is another one so again what i try and do michael is i try and make sure that we're talking about foods that you can buy anywhere in the world so if i'm in america or i'm in czech republic i'm in france or spain you can go to an aldi you can pick up rice noodles you can pick up white rice you can pick up coconut milk we're not talking about you know organic kale here we're talking about stuff you can pick up everywhere and if you try that jobs are good and even something as simple as using gluten-free flour you're taking the gluten-free box gluten-free pasta is invariably made from rice so by default it's lower in fiber
0: Mm, yeah that's interesting um the, the day before the race especially what i've been doing is to i mean eat like normal normal meals like with rice and tomato sauce or maybe chicken or something um but but the large amount of of carbohydrates that i want to get in like getting to that 10 to 12 grams per kilo uh for the day i get in from just pure melted dextrin and fructose uh so drinking it essentially liquid carbs and that's something that uh, i found works well for me because it's it's a lot of eating to to be eating 10 to 12 grams of carbohydrates if you if you eat all of it
1: uh, it's, it's hard going and the thing is you know i've heard athletes say oh, i don't like it listen you're not going to afternoon tea to the ritz it's you know yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. this is a perfect this is the performance stage of it whereas you know I, I, as soon as you finish man get all that healthy stuff down your neck but when you're into it just get as many pure carbs in as you can and i think yeah. you know that that's the thing that, that i think is really important
0: yeah but that, that's where what i was thinking about there as, as well is going back to the tracking um a period of time where i find it very useful to to calculate exactly what you get in in particular in terms of carbs is the the two days before a key race because then that's when you start to realize how much you actually or how difficult it actually is to get in even seven to eight grams per kilo body weight i think a lot of athletes don't realize just how much carbohydrate that is and then for a race you try to get in 10 grams or twelve grams per kilo body weight, and and that's a, a huge amount. And, and unless you're very deliberate about it, then it's you're you're not going to get it. I don't think so. So that's yeah. that's an area where it's useful to track uh, and at least once to get to get an idea for what how, what you need to consume.
1: Exactly, and I think it's also athletes that are listening to this need to be aware they can train the gap to take on carbs. They can train the body to do it, and and that's something, again, if you took a, a, a benchmark athlete who'd, who'd been predominantly under fueling and you suddenly start to sticking in that amount of food into them or loading them up with 100 to 120 grams of carbs per hour, they're going to have some fairly unpleasant experiences coming along quite quickly. So I think it's something that, that they should look at the whole overall performance package, um, but don't become obsessed about it. Just let it build up, and that's why use your calendar. Just use your calendar, and I think keeping a journal is something that that people just don't use enough. It, it doesn't cost anything. It's not shiny or sparkling, but how do you feel? And you know, when they're and again, when they're doing the post race, you know, diagnosis, and they're looking at it, going, "Well, well, what did I eat before, and how did I feel, and how were my energy levels?" And so often, that that is that's just the missing part. I always refer to it as the performance jigsaw puzzle. You know, we all know how the puzzle should look, but whether you put it together starting at the sides or in the middle or the top, however you put it together, just think about how to put that puzzle together because fueling is a big part of the puzzle. And and I think, you know, one of the things that I wanted to bring up as well is I'm I'm fairly fortunate. You know, we've been running this business for uh ten years now. So I look at training plans from coaches all over the world and work in elite athletes and down to people who just want to get round and it's also, I think, something that's really interesting to look at, Michael, is to look at like the habits of professional athletes and, and what can you learn from pros. Because the problem is, is that professional athletes are out there and they're promoting the brands and the products and what they're doing. And as amateurs, all they're doing is they're looking through there, they've got that keyhole. They're just doing mm-hmm. that and they're seeing that one thing that's a here and now, and they're not looking over the big thing. And I think, you know, if we look at, say, the bad stuff, and I let's start negative. I generally try not to be negative when I'm talking on any form of platform or whatever. And if you look at the negative stuff that you can learn from pro sport, because I think there's a lot to be learned, is that chasing excellence is something that professional athletes do. It's something that they do, but they've got an infrastructure that's around them. Now, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, I've worked in a couple of high-performing environments like Michelin star kicking and elite sport and all that. To become excellent at anything requires obsessive behaviour. That's a fact. Nobody comes world class at anything by being ambiguous or being beige. Beige doesn't create excellence. The problem with that is if you then, because this is, we're talking about food. If you apply that to food, you can end up going down a rabbit hole. So if you ever get to the point that you're weighing your food or you're worrying about food and you should seek professional advice. Now, professional advice is not Instagram. Let's just cut, let's just factually put that out there, right? Social media is not is not professional advice, okay? Social media is worth what you pay for it, which is nothing, okay? So if it's for free, it, that's what it's worth. It's not worth a thing. There's some brilliant sports scientists out there. Some brilliant practitioners. Personal favourite: there's a there's a lady in the UK called Renee McGregor who wrote a brilliant book called "Authorexia" about the cult of clean eating and how you know if you think, well, I'm doing this. this level if i just double this i'll become just so much better and that's something that you have to be aware of in elite sport is that generally these people will have psychologists they'll have physiologists they'll have nutritionists they'll have dietitians they'll have every metric measured that is almost impossible for 95 percent of your listeners to achieve so be aware of excellence and just be aware of obsessiveness you do that you start weighing stuff you start worrying about your food too much or you start looking at labels too much just take a step back buy orthorexia or uh it's on it's on amazon it costs nothing it's the best 10 quid you'll ever say the other one i think and we touched on it earlier metrics is measuring metrics now i'm not a nerd um you know i'm not a particular nerd but i think weight and body fat percentage is probably the metric that most people should be least concerned about i've never seen anybody's body fat percentage on a result sheet um, any more than ever seen anybody's watts per kilo on a result sheet. It's irrelevant. And I would say, you know, again, you look at these amazing examples of, of athletes that are, that are out there and and I think it's, it borderlines, there's disordered eating across the board. And I think it's something that, you know, there's been two cases of lately. And, and again, my, my attitude, and, and you need to stop me, Michael, if, if I'm talking out of hand here, I generally don't use social media or any platform to talk badly about other people. I think if you've got nothing nice to say, then you shouldn't say it at all. But there's a couple of cases of late that that struck out to me that I thought were, were reckless talking about body fat, fat percentage and weight, because I think what you've got to look at is anybody who's in the public eye that's a professional athlete, as a professional athlete, you've almost got a duty of care to the people that are looking at you. There's sponsors, there's young athletes that look up to you. There's people that don't actually understand the requirements of elite athletes and i think when people start talking about the body fat percentage and their weight that's such an unimportant measurement when it comes to performance i just think it's almost the the least relevant because you and i know if if you're going to have an athlete and at that matter whether it's michael who wants to qualify for world 70.3 or somebody that wants to win the olympics the main key the main thing that they're going to do is be able to absorb a high training volume training load and consistency. Consistency, consistency, consistency. If you are constantly depleted or you are operating at such a low body fat percentage that you're not robust, you're not able to absorb the training, you're not able to recover, you're not able to go out day after day, you're never going to achieve your goals. It doesn't matter whether you're Michael that works in an office or you're winning your third Olympics on the bounce. ain't going to happen. And the two cases I want to talk about lately, there was a a husband of a a very famous athlete who said, oh, I'm at a race, I'm 4% body fat, you know more than anybody that's racing here. What relevance is that of anything? You know, are you you're telling me that Christian Blumenfeld has stood on the start line and he's measuring his body fat? now? Nah, he's looked at how many hours he's logged. Yeah, it's completely and utterly irrelevant. And I just think that that uh, associating associating your body fat percentage with success, what the success look like, is 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 dangerous. I think it's irrelevant to be perfectly honest for most athletes. And then there was another one that absolutely killed me. That there was a. Uh, Uh, again, I'm not going to name names. It was an athlete who's had a phenomenal season, won multiple, multiple big races, and they put out on social media. Now, bear in mind on Instagram, this athlete's got over 500,000 followers, all right? That's a big reach, that they'd lost three and a half kilos and they're now ready to race. Now, I'm guesstimating that's probably six to 8% of this athlete's body weight. That's what they'd lost. So they'd associated losing three and a half kilos as being ready to race. That's reckless. That's absolutely reckless. And at that point, the sponsors of that athlete want to get on the phone and say, hey, 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 there's kids looking at this. You know, there's athletes doing that. That is dangerous. Now, this athlete might have done it correctly. They might have been doing it for 10 years. They might have measured it. But that was the headline news for it. I just think that that's... But you also then look at the top end of the sport, the PTO, right? So the PTO have done some brilliant things. They've put on races during lockdown, they've got you know athlete welfare at the forefront, you know, there's maternity pay, there's all sorts of stuff going on. You and know, I, Michael, we're sat on our sofa with our big Mac, relaxing, and we are watching a PTO race. What flashes up, this athlete, and what's a metric that they've got on the athlete as it comes up on the screen, the athletes wait. Yeah. Seriously. The athletes, they want to say, oi, 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 oi. Why is my weight on there? Because it's not, it, it's not a measurement of, of me as a person. It's not a weight, a measurement of my shape. And if you go onto PTO website, which, which I did the other day, just to make sure I knew what I was talking about, there's only three female athletes in the top 10 that actually don't have the weight on, on the PTO website. Do you know who they are? The three best performing athletes. Well, not, you could say Ashley Dental's got hers on there and she's been amazing. So and I, and I'm not, again, I'm not divulging Kat Matthews who, for me, if she hadn't had her accident, would have won Kona. Chelsea Sardaro and Taylor Nib haven't got the weight on there. Why have the rest of them got on there? If somebody from the PTA asked me my weight, I'd say, why? It's not a, it's not a judgment of where I am. So I think that that is something that's really dangerous in elite sport. And I said, if you're looking into it, Honestly, I would be more concerned about how many sessions in your 12, 14, 16-week training block did you feel correctly? How many hours sleep did you get? How many hours did you spend training in a position? How many swim drills you did you do? Any metric you want, but going on, you've lost X amount of kilos, you're ready to race, or you're at 6% body fat. Seriously, do yourself a favor and don't worry about it. That's dangerous, and that's something that is a bad thing about elite sport. There's an with weight, and... I just think that. And if, again, if you look at it, the reason I'll say this, if you look at any world-class endurance event and you obviously watch a lot of sport, you're well read, it's divided into thirds. All right. There's thirds and you look at this and you'll say, this is right. There'll be a third that will turn up undercooked. Basically, they're injured. They've not been able to do the training. The body's broken down and they're not, they shouldn't be there, but they're going to get overcooked, right? Uh, undercooked, Under. Under-cooked. Under, under oh, okay. so okay, okay. Not, They've not done the work. You know, they've, okay. they've said, right, I'm going to do it. the under. So there's a third under, there's a third over. Mm. All right? There's a third over who have done too much. They've been chasing that elusive 35-hour weeks. They've done too much. They've done too much. They've not rested enough. Now, both of them, food plays a huge part in it. All right, because you can become injured because you're maybe depleted or you haven't eaten properly. That's going to affect your health and well-being, and they'll be overcooked as well. They've just done too much and they've burnt themselves out. And there's a third actually race. So if you look at Kona, look at the elite field. How many actually race it? A third, if you're lucky. There's only ever a third. And you want to be in that third. You don't want to be in the third that's over or under. So that's why I think it's really important that you look at your training load and elite athletes always post these amazing numbers and everything else. But if you look at how many of them actually ever compete at the sharp end, it's probably no more than a third. Look at London Marathon, look at Olympic Marathon, look at Olympic 10,000 metres. Any endurance event you like, there's a third race it. ask yourself why, and it's either over or undercooked. So I think that's something that's really, really important. Um, And the training load that a lot of elite athletes will operate on, they've got to remember that, that If you Again, you'll know this, world-class swimmers, unless you're swimming competitively by the age of, what is it, eight, you're never going to be a world-class swimmer. If you look at any endurance sport, the chances are they've been doing it for a long period of time. They've built up a huge base. It's not like they've just suddenly come into money or their life's changed and they're going to take up elite sport. They've been doing it for a long time, so the load and the intensity at which they operate is a completely different level to what amateur athletes were. Don't try and copy that because – Again, I don't know what your biggest hour is week. So I've done 35 hours in the week before. and mate, I've not been able to get out of bed the following week. So I think just be aware of of following the load, et cetera, that elite athletes do. There's a reason they do that. And it's a reason they're world class. And if you try and copy that, you're going to end up with issues. So I would say those are the bad things. That are Have you got no, any I'll
0: other? D- d- I'll, d- I'll just jump in there because this is something the listeners won't know, but we actually had a a chat where we planned this interview a bit and went through some things. And we, and we talked about this for a long time, actually, the social media. And uh, well, at least I recognize at least the first post that you mentioned there, and, and I actually yeah. went and commented on it because I thought it was so horrendous. Uh, and uh, yeah, I didn't see the other ones, but I I have commented on other posts or sent messages and things when when I think people are out of line with with that, and I do agree like it's a uh, it's really uh yeah it's 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 really dangerous and and really re- really poor uh judgment from from athletes that that post those kinds of things
1: exactly there's there's nothing to be gained from it there's absolutely nothing to be gained from it there's there's no possible benefits from doing that and i think you know the the, the that's something that, that's that, that it's it's hugely dangerous it's da- dangerous and destructive and you know i've i've heard horror stories about stuff in the past of athletes being told to lose weight or comments. And I think the famous one, again, I'm not, I won't be, is that somebody made the comment that Cart Matthews didn't look like a runner. And I remember sending her a message to go, well, what does a runner look like? You know, and I'm sure Nicola Spirig thinks Cart Matthews looks like a runner, but it's just like, who, who, seriously, like, come on. Like, come on, it's just, it's dangerous, but no, it's, it's something it's, I it's, think it's
0: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of ignorance, uh, in, in the sport and, and even at a coaching level, I think there's a lot of ignorance and, and I've, I've heard a lot of stories and I think I may be wrong, but I think it's more prevalent on the, in triathlon, on the short course triathlon circuit than, than long course. Yeah. And, um, but I, I would be curious actually to hear your perspective on that because from my perspective as a coach and, and for, for us as a coaching business, we get a lot of athletes to us that have done some sort of. They maybe have been doing been doing on a, a low carb, high fat diet or something, and they're burnt out from that. And they come to us to try to sort sort things out, or or they have have had some sort of just simply like maybe an eating disorder or just under fueling. Uh, that's very common that we get athletes that try to sort out their training and racing, and and one of the main reasons that they are in a in a mess is one of those one of those reasons yes. that those have been very common factors but you working directly with uh, nutrition and food uh, i i bet for you you see that even more clearly if that is the case like do you get lots of athletes coming to you uh, that have yeah that come to you with that hist- direct history of of issues
1: Yes, we do now i i've got to the stage in my life michael that i'm i, I don 't beat about the boost so if somebody's come to me and i I genuinely think they've got an issue i i i'm not qualified to deal with that it's not my it's not my role to do that, so I would always put them to a professional. Alternatively, if somebody tells me that they're a certain weight and they only eat a certain amount of food, I'll say, seriously? <laughs> Come on, let's do the maths on this. You know, if they're, if they are overweight and they want to lose and they say, well, they're only having 1500 calories a day. And I say, well, and you're doing what? Three hours a day? And that doesn't add up. So we do get it occasionally. And sometimes it's a matter of some tough love and just say, look, that isn't the case. Or alternatively, if somebody's got some acute behavior, I'll, I'll put them down the route of some healthcare professionals that I know. So, it's something that's really, really common. It is really common. Generally, I would say, see, maybe one or two cases a month um, that people will approach us, thinking that we're just going to be a quick fix that you just tell them to eat X, Y, and Z. But a lot of it's quite often it's deep rooted. But if you think about how we view our self worth these days through social media, etc., that's why I, I worry about future generations. You know, because they're judging their self worth on this. And your self worth has got nothing to do with this. And you know, I've I've got teenage daughters. It's the same thing. But it's 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 quite a, it's quite a scary place. So what you're telling me about are people who've gone on these fuddy diets, I can tell you categorically that the best athletes in the world don't go on fuddy diets. They eat everything. They eat it in balance and moderation. Fat. That's it. They're they're not yeah. depleting themselves with anything. And the ones that are maybe got that, maybe it's insecurity or maybe it's it's a cry for help or I, I'm not qualified to say, but all I'll say is that those issues are, are very easy to spot when, you know, you are, there's a couple of cases recently. I've refused to work with certain people and until they've got professional help and I'll put them to the right people that can deal with that. So it's, it, it it's scary, but professional sport has to take an accountability PTO. Why the hell have we got the athletes weight? First and foremost, why? why I, I i don't understand why it's there it makes it interesting well this athlete's x y z but if you look at it if you look at the metrics you would suggest that nobody can be successful in long course triathlon as a female athlete unless they're 50 odd kilos that's what it would suggest and if you're not you might as well not bother or because all the top athletes are 50 something kilos. I know for a fact that top athletes aren't 57 kilos. That that is not a metric for excellence. It's not at all. And the other one, while we're on a rant about professional sport, the other one as well, I think you have to be a little bit aware of with practitioners in sport, certainly people who've been to university are these clever nerds that are just purely looking at metrics. This is a human sport. It's about people. And your ability to get on in life, you as a coaching business, will be, if, if you're not empathetic and you don't understand the people, then you'll never actually cultivate great coaching or great people. And I, it used to crack me up that people, that we'd have these amazing sports scientists and I used to fall out with them because they'd never look at the humans. They'd never look at the athlete. They'd look at the white of their eyes. They'd look at the morale of the athlete. And I think it's something, again, to be a little bit careful of. If, say, a sports scientist is just giving an athlete macros for example, right, this is what your macro or your calorie count has to be today. They're not looking at the person, and I think that's something that, that we lose track of these days and remote everything and just looking at athlete's metrics without looking at the human behind it. And There was one particular example we had, and we were we were a year out from the Olympics, the first Olympics, the 2020 not the 2021, and we were on a, a training camp in Portugal with a male um, endurance squad for British Cycling. So these are all the guys that are going to the Olympics to win medals. And um, the weather was shit. It was like Portugal and it rained for 10 days. And on the second last day, um, the guys were doing double days. So they were doing big endurance blocks and doing gym, filthy training it was. And um, on the second last day, I'd I'd been out with the guys and they'd been out and they'd done six hours with two and a half thousand meters of climbing in the rain, right? That was day nine of riding in the rain. And we had a meal plan, which we always did for the ordering, which I always ran by a nutritionist. And the guys were broken. So I did them this pasta bake with cheese and bacon and did them like sweet potato brownies or like vanilla yogurt and everything because they were broken. They were absolutely broken. I had a phone call from Manchester from this guy he goes, why are they, what, what's on the meal plan? I said, well, this, but I changed it. And they go, why did you change it? I said, do you want to see the guys? They've done, they've done six hours in the rain this is, you know, they're broken. And I said, so I can give them grilled chicken with green vegetables and white rice. But what will happen is half an hour later, they're going to be in the Years room having Haribo and Pringles and sugary cereal. So let's look at the morale of the athlete. And it's something I think is quite often missing in, in academics or professionals that if they... If they haven't been there, walk the walk. And I'm not just saying the best athletes make the best coaches, the best practitioners, because they don't. They don't. But I just say sometimes you have to look at the human element of it. And quite often, it's all about numbers and X, Y, and Z. Look at the human. And again, you have to do it as a coach, because if you're setting somebody an unrealistic plan of you need to do X, Y, or Z hours, and you think, well, they've they've got two young kids, or they've got a job, or this woman's just moved jobs, or they moved house, or whatever. How are they ever going to do it? And I think that human element is something, again, professional athletes invariably will only have one thing to worry about, is their performance. They won't be worrying about other stuff. So just take any advice you get in that sphere with a little bit of a a pinch of salt, because quite often it's not all about the metrics, it's about human, and a happy athlete will be a good performing athlete. And if you're trying to get them to do something that's not going to make them happy, then quite often you're not going to get the best outcome. And I've I've seen that. that. I've had a few... Let's say challenges with professionals in elite sport because of that. They've just been looking at metrics and not looking at the the guys are broken.
0: Yeah, so. that's it's probably the best advice that I ever received as a coach and that I've ever given. From not, yeah, I got it first and gave it later, but uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, and
1: yeah, that's Ooh, I like that. I like yeah. that. <clears throat> well, yeah. That's good. Well, I used to ride with the guys a lot because you know with a with a truck, they're certainly the pursuit guys. you you know if you if you're unreasonably fit you could hang on the wheels okay and you go out or you'd look at the dinner table and they'd be quiet the quiet dinner table is either they're blown away with the food or they're broken and and if you were doing constant 10-day camps in the rain and you just got to look at the morale of those athletes and it's something that's and it's also having that empathy and i think if you've I remember um, I'm good mates with Dan Bigham and I remember he uh, was talking recently in one of the many podcasts he was on about, you know, with him going into Ineos because he competes with the guys on a, on a level he's got an end, he's got, you know, he's got, he's got a lot more acceptability and because you ride yourself and you know, you've been reasonable at sport yourself, there's almost an, an, an acceptability. You know what you're talking about? You might not, but I think, you know, if you've done six hours in the rain, you don't want grilled chicken and white rice. I'll tell you that for a fact.
0: Yeah. Good. Right. I I I want I want I want to comment on that on that Training camp. Uh, one more thing, because uh, we're actually running a training camp in Portugal this January, and I know where you were. You were in Miranda do Corvo, which is in the center of the country. <laughs> yeah. We're going to go to the Algarve, where the weather is a lot nicer, so we won't have <laughs> ten days of rain. <laughs> uh, I
1: love it. That's Michael Seals' pitch for his, for his Algarve.
0: Not, <laughs> yeah, the, the, camp, the camp is actually sold out already, but it's just uh, not to, not to scare the people that are registered for it. <laughs> uh,
1: now no, no, Miranda do Corvo was good because we had a, a very quiet training base and we had a gym because the the truck guys do a lot of gym work. I mean the gym and we had it was good it was a good place to be but we used to occasionally get these blocks didn't happen often but you get 10 days of rain which was so right so that's the negative stuff i think about about the elite athletes and then i think it's also good to look at at the good stuff and it was something you touched on earlier i think elite elite athletes are are very athletically self-aware they know what works for them and they're not afraid to do what works for them and i think that's something that that's very difficult for Certainly athletes that are new to the sport or haven't been in the sport for a long period of time, which invariably are with athletes that want coaching and nutrition advice, so people that you and I work with. So I'd say is if you look at, say, the top of the performance pyramid, if you look at, say, I'm, I'm going to use two, two names which are relevant, which are obviously very different. If you look at Christian Blumenfeld and Jan Fodeno, both won Olympic short course or Olympic triathlon and both won Ironman World Championships. You couldn't get two two more different specimens, physical specimens. Now, if if Christian suddenly decided he wanted to look like Jan, I think Christian's performance might go off a cliff. And also, if Jan decided he wanted to look like Christian, that might be quite an odd thing as well. So I think those two athletes are very athletically self-aware. And you look at Christian's training methods about the science, and they take himself off to altitude and do all all the Christian Blumenfeld stuff. That's very different from Jan, you know, living with his family, having a very small training group and just, you know, you speak to Jan and he talks about meat and potatoes, just does the basics really well. And he'll go to a swimming pool and and I've done some work with Jan. Jan's a, Jan's a great guy and he'll go to a pool and he'll get in and he'll, he'll be doing a swim session and two lanes across will be his training partner. And there'll be some guy doing breaststroke. do not care, don't bother him at all. And he, he'll go out, you'll do the same four rides. He'll do kilometer intervals around an industrial estate in Girona he does meat and potatoes and he's found out what works for him so I think that being athletically self-aware about what works for you is something that is really important and a lot of professional athletes know they won't necessarily monkey see monkey do this person's doing that they'll find out what works for them and I would say that's a great bit of advice for what you're going to do and I would say the other one as well is identifying key races and practicing for them because so much of it is what happens and we've had a couple of clients who one guy in particular he lives in wales in the uk it's cold it's wet and his key races every year in central europe and i'm like what? Well, why do you think you're going to go well in 35 degrees when you live in one of the coldest wettest places in the uk also make sure that you you identify what success looks like for you as an athlete and i think that's something that's really really important because the behaviors and the habits around how you operate I'm using this from a food perspective, but training and a level of commitment or investment. I don't like sacrifice because they're not in a war zone. You know what I mean? It's investment. It's personal investment in in It's applicable to what success looks like. And if you're looking to finish a race or you are wanting to qualify for age group or you want to win age group or you want to become a, a professional that survives or it's winning multiple world and Olympic championships, those are very, very different. So I think it's really important that you identify what success looks like, and professional athletes are very, very good at doing that. Like I've worked with athletes that, that an Olympic silver medal is an absolute disaster. I've worked with people who they just want to finish, and that, that they get as much of a buzz out of it. And then there's a there's a great sports psychologist in the UK, a woman called Dr. Josie Perry, and and we've done some work with her and clients, and she's got this great kind of mantra. I'm going to get the words wrong, but she says you identify what the goal is and then you create habits around those goals and you you work out where you are. So again, if Michael wants to qualify for World 70.3, what are the habits and behaviours of that person? And how many of them are you doing? them, And then reassess it. And I think pros are very good at identifying what success looks like. And they're not deluded. That Again, if you want to, if qualifying for Kona as a pro, that's your goal, brilliant. But you shouldn't, that shouldn't be say the ambition of Daniela Riff or Lucy Charles or Kat Matthews it's not and the behavior is adapted accordingly and I think that's something you know we talk about fueling and everything else you know if you say you need to ride a four-hour bike split work out what that looks like work out what your CDA means what what your CDA means to you what your fueling does and practice it in training and just get those habits that those are good habits and I think it's really important with that I've got two examples that I'm going to talk about with that about about practicing for the events and identifying what success looks like. And they're they're two quite good ones for a little bit of research. So the ones a few years ago, and and they're both cycling related because cycling is very easy to track metrics. So um, a few years ago, Chris Froome was wanting to try and win the Giro, the Vuelta and the Tour all in the same year. So that was what success looked like for him. And he, in January... Was done, I've actually written this down actually because it's difficult numbers. January 2018, and you'll know this from a coach's perspective. Chris Froome went out and did this famous ride that was on Strava called Empty in the Tank. Now get your head around this. He did 270k, right, at 44 kilometers, 44.8 kilometers an hour, with three and a half thousand meters of climbing. Right, that's wow. a big, that's a big <laughs> deal on the bike. Now yeah. what he'd also done, sandwiched between that day, is he'd done 300k either side of it. So 160 and 140K. So he went out and he did that. Now, as a coach, is there any physiological benefit of doing that at the start of January for a race in May? And the answer is no, because you can't keep form that long. What the hell are you doing that for? What Froome was doing was he was training his GAP to absorb high-dose carbohydrate under stress while fatigue. So he was looking at what where the demands of events was, and he was practicing it from a fueling perspective. If you then go to May 2018, stage 19 of the Giro, Amazing attack. Old school attack. Froom went attack. Three weeks in, 19 days, not quite three weeks, but you get what I'm meaning. Fatigued. And he went to the front and he attacked with 80k to go. Look at his bike. Look what he's got on his bike. He's got one bottle. Like, who the hell attacks with 80k to go, one bottle? But he knew he'd trained his gut to take on 80 to 100 grams of carbs per hour and he had an hour full gas. And he knew he could do it. And they, they also had people to give him bottles all the way around. So when his competitors were going, ah, oh shit, what do we do? Froom's gotten, Froom's gotten. He was away and he knew that he could take on that amount of carbohydrate under stress while fatigued. And if you want to see, well, what relevance is this in triathlon? Look at when the wheels come off. Look at the last 20K of Kona. Any year you like, Doesn't no matter what year it is. And you'll see these amazing athletes that are like, look like they're sculpted out of stone that are stood by the side of the road, literally their body isn't able to take on sports nutrition product because they've not trained their body for the demands of the event. It's as simple as that. They've done the hours. you know, They've done the underpants run. They look great, but they've not trained the body to take on fuel under load. That's it. There's no other reason for it because they've done the work to get there, but have they trained the body to take on carbs after nine hours? My guess is not. That's why they're doing it. So that's one very good example of a professional athlete that trains for the demands of the event well in advance. There's another one, which again, and, and I'm looking at the opposite end of the spectrum about an athlete who actually adapted to the conditions and used the fueling. In, um, this year, the world cyclocross championships was in, um, was in Arkansas. It was in America and it was in seasonally warm. It was in the 20 degrees. Now, if you think about cyclocross, for those that don't know about cyclocross, cyclocross is a very European sport. It's predominantly in Northern Europe is in Belgium and France and it's in, usually in pretty inclement conditions. This is cyclocross season, November, December, January, February. So it's normally really cold conditions, really horrible wet conditions. And the no- races are normally between 50 minutes and an hour long. That's what it is, full gas. This year, the greatest cyclist currently, I would say, yeah, you could argue ever, Marianne Voss was racing the women's race. And you think it's 50 minutes, full gas. I think a race was 50 odd minutes, 55 minutes. And Marianne Voss did something that nobody else did. First of all, she won, which nobody else did. But she had a bottle on her bike. She had a bottle. She had a bead on, a 500 mil bead on. And what happened was every time she got to start finish straight, she took a drink of a bottle and looked at her main competitor, Lucinda Brand. So it's 20 plus degrees, and she's doing an hour of over unders, full gas efforts. Would you ever, ask yourself this as an athlete, would you ever do an hour of full gas intervals without taking a drink? absolutely
0: not Never. i wouldn't do i would i wouldn't do a 30 minute race without a without a bottle
1: <laughs> exactly but the culture <clears throat> the culture in that sport was well we don't have a bottle it's only a short race why we do it she looked at the conditions. she adapted corny brilliant only person that did it only person that did it i worked with an athlete who was in the top 10 i asked her was she thirsty she goes yeah i was thirsty after 20 minutes okay what would the boss do she adapted accordingly but the brilliant thing this is the brilliant thing you love it so you are watching the most prolific winning athlete that's currently in the pro peloton, male or female, by some margin. All the men are watching this. It's on the Saturday. On the Sunday, how many of them had a bottle on the bike? One. The person that won it, Tom Pidcock. is the only <laughs> one that had a bottle. So you ask well, but they're the best in the world. And why are they the best in the world? Because they look at the details. So you think about Pidcock. So Pidcock's probably 50, 55 kilos dripping wet. He's putting like 600 grams on his bike. So he's putting a considerable amount on his bike because, and again, he did it. Every start, finish straight, he took a drink. And I put a post out on this in uh, February after the Worlds was on. And it was probably where there was interactive post. People were, but they don't do that in second Well, Well, it was 20-odd degrees. Why would you not do it in circumstances? So I would say the two messages from that is, is as a pro- professional, either practice for the event. So if your key event is Frankfurt in the middle of summer, it's going to be hot. Look at what it looks like. Train your gut. Do all the things you can work out the amount of carbohydrate. Be aware that taking solid fuel is going to raise your core temperature. It's harder to digest and do that well in advance. And also make sure you've got that protocol in advance of what you're going to eat in the 24, 48 hours before. And then also don't be afraid to adapt to the conditions. Look at those two. Whilst you're, you know, all your clients are doing winter training, go online and look up Froom stage 19 giro and look at the world cyclocross championships from last year every time just a drink every time they were doing it for an hour race so if that's a sprint race or whether it's a two-hour race because a one-hour two-hour four-hour eight-hour race they're going to have different requirements but when you're doing your plan of what success looks like from a fueling perspective that that start that five months in advance and start practicing it you know even something as simple as you see it in the pro ranks i saw um Lucy Charles Barkley did it in one of the PTO races. She has not practiced putting a bottle in and out. In Where the yeah. hell were they? Were they in Texas or some god-awful place?
0: Like yeah, 40- Dallas.
1: Dallas. Mike, seriously, mate. I, I would be like, oh, what? there's no reason for that. So again, if, if you've got to think, every time you come up out your aero position, it's going to cost you 50 watts. Practice. You know, practice having your bottle whilst you're in the air position, practice taking on gels, you know, practice that hours in advance. And I think that's something that's really, really important. Um, And make sure that that's as part of your protocol as anything else. And, you know, the 24, 48 hours prior to race, make sure you've got it all sorted. The reason I'd say that, if if Michael, you go to your world 70.3 and you've managed to qualify, and the night before I say, right, there's a new bike, it's free. I'm going to give you a pair of running shoes, they're free, but they're slightly too small and I'm going to give you a new saddle, it's free. Would you use that saddle in new shoes? Never. But people do it with food. Yeah. I'll yeah, go to a hotel, I'll go to a hotel just practice it. And I'd say, that's what one of the things I would say that elite athletes are very good at. They, they know what success looks like. You know, So some of them having a contract, getting paid, great. You do the same thing and write it down. Just write it down on a piece of paper and then say, okay, well, what habits does... Age group winner, age group qualifier, finisher, what habits do they have? And then apply that logic to food. So if you need to be able to and then just keep going back to it, revisit, set yourself a reminder that every four weeks go back and say, Okay, well, off these habits around your food, your fueling, how many of these sessions did I train at a gram of carbohydrate per kilo of body weight per hour? How many did I practice in my aero position drinking? And do it and, and and you know that's something I think is 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 under under sort of emphasized with athletes but pros do it all the time they'll go out and they'll train in position and you're like ah oh, it's bloody expensive you know cuz a bottle of carb drinks 4 pounds listen you oh but it's
0: not it's, it's it's not maltodextrin fructose it's dirt cheap and like, and you just mix up your own drink
1: absolutely it can be it can be as cheap it can be as complicated or it can be as easy as you want to make it but it's just giving yourself a chance of success and if success is getting round cool get round But don't then be pissed off with yourself or your coach or your team around you if you don't achieve success because food and fueling, basically Ironman is an eating competition. That's it. That's what it is. You've got to be able to eat under stress. If you can't eat in the lead up and during the event, you're never going to achieve your goals. And if you look at it now, one of the things I found... I found Kona a bit unremarkable this year. I've got to be honest, the men's race I find unremarkable because I was blown away that they were looking at their watches and they're taking Super Sapiens to work out when they're drinking. I quite like the fact that you were watching the wheels come off when people drop bottles. But if you look at that control and you look at how metronomic the performances were, is it's a fueling competition.
0: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I get what you're saying. I think unremarkable is maybe the wrong word when when four people uh, obliterated the the previous course. Yeah,
1: so. yeah. I'm I, I'm being unkind. I I thought it was predictable. Predictable. Yeah. Predictable yeah. is probably a slightly nicer way of saying unremarkable. I thought that's yeah. what I personally thought because you just knew it was going to happen. It was good conditions. Yeah. You looked at the prep the guys had done, and you thought, "Nah, it's predictable." And and predictability in sport is. Yeah, it's great for the athletes. It's not great when you're sat on the sofa. So, you know what I mean. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, yeah I think, I mean, on Kona, when, when you said that, when you see these great athletes on the side of the road and, and they just can't keep running, I I, I think th- there's a part of that that's nutrition, but I also think that in that particular race, part of it is just pacing. And and it might be, in some cases, or or in some cases, it certainly mm-hmm. is that the athletes, they just execute poorly, they they don't stick to their plan or their plan was was not good in the first place. But it can also be sometimes in that race, it's very expensive to get there. Only the top fifteen get paid. They have to take a chance and on a really good day they can maybe sneak into the top five or top ten or podium and, and yeah. get a get a payday and but then if it doesn't work out then they're standing on the side of the road so i think i think there there are some race uh, dynamics to that race that it's it's not just about the nutrition when you when you see
1: uh, it. well it's also you look at it and there's been a lot of stuff documented you know theoretically you are going to do it well you need what you need a month six weeks somewhere nice and yeah. replicating conditions that, that that's something it's very yeah. difficult to do and you know yourself you know if you lose that pace line you know if you can't see the guys up the road you know what what price and there's very few people who will let a pace line go. But if they're not training, you know, for example, if they're used to doing, you know, if they're used to doing 180 K at 300 Watts and suddenly they've got a ride at 320 Watts, what's the carbohydrate requirement required to do an extra 8% is huge or 10%, you know, and they can cover those breaks, but all they're doing is they're burning matches and it's, it's a difficult race and it's it's also difficult to predict. But if you go back to your thirds of undercooked, overcooked and actually people that race it, it's the same, you know, like if you went through the finishing list there, you'd say, okay, well, who got this wrong and why? And, and that's what's fascinating about it. You don't, like the men's race, you could have predicted a bit. But I, I, I didn't think Christian was going to win. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, I don't know why, but I, I, I thought it was fairly predictable. But yeah, I get it. You know, if I was there, I'd go for it. I'd, I'd rather have a crock at it. I mean, yeah. But then you also look at the pressures and there was a, you know, now they've got so much media and everything to do and they're all sitting around chatting and doing all this, this this stuff for sponsors. And, you know, I've seen it myself this year that we've had athletes underperform because of the, I think personally, because of the, 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 the requirements put onto them to be busy, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yep.
0: Um I have one one question that I want to get to and then we can start to wrap up but uh, we talked about here um well you talked about what amateurs can learn from pros so it's not exactly differences but but a a difference question that I have is uh, are there any differences that you see between males and females perhaps as it pertains to the different phases of the menstrual cycle or any other differences that that you think are worth talking about
1: Um the menstrual cycle and the hormones is 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 it's really difficult, and I, I know some athletes suffer terribly with it. Firstly, it's always been difficult because the, the majority of practitioners, coaches that work in elite sport are predominantly men. It is what it is. I don't know why it is, especially cycling. It still seems to be very male-dominated. That's really hard, especially for younger athletes. So if you imagine you're a younger athlete that's 19, 20, younger female athlete, and she's got to go to some 45-year-old Belgian dude and say, well, I don't want to go out today because I feel it's not quite right. That's really difficult. It's becoming much more acceptable. Unfortunately, there's still very little in the way of, of research and, and professionals working in that space. Um, there's a really good app called Fitter Woman, F I T R Woman, that is brilliant about tracking a cycle. And Stacey Sims has done some great stuff on, on females in sport and elite sport, which is great. And she's got a fantastic book called Roar, R-O-A-R, which is available on Amazon, which is must reading for, I think, any athlete because we've all got to have relationships with female athletes and females. And to give you an understanding, you know, as boys, it's really easy. We just we just race and we've got no excuses. With the females, it can be really challenging. And obviously they can have requirements at certain times in their cycle, which can have huge impacts on performance. So um, Stacey Sims and Fitter Woman are are two things that are worth doing. Um, the other thing as well is I think there's also a lot more, pressure on female athletes to look and behave in a certain way and when they're talking about the menstrual cycle and it, it it's really difficult and and even today like um i read there was an article with um with one of the british cycling sprinters who was talking about periods and that's great it was sophie capewell that was talking about it online and it's getting coverage now so i think it's it's something that's really important and, and i try to to have the elephant in the room out with any female athletes that I'm talking with you know are they tracking their cycle do they have any special requirements and I think from your perspective as well from a coach's perspective theoretically you should be able to you should have the relationship with the athlete that they can tell you so you can adapt their training accordingly so um yeah there is a huge difference and I think they've just got and it but again it's hugely individual that some athletes are affected massively by it and others kind of manage it better but They need to track it and they need to communicate with their team around them to help them best they can. In theory, there there can be a carbohydrate requirement of up to 25% more at certain times. And I've worked with athletes that we've managed it really, really well. And they've, they've performed at key events through sharing the right information at the time. But if you have the Fitter Woman app and you listen to the podcast or read the book by Stacey Sims, but it's still, it's still not. Talked about that much, which is quite yeah. quite sad. But it's uh, well, it,
0: it's, so it, in practice, it's as you you do it on a very on a completely individual basis, though. Like you, you don't have a specific like formula per se. Like
1: no, so I, I, just because of the way some athletes are affected by it. Some athletes are hugely affected, and others others can manage it through ibuprofen and and, and just increasing yeah. carbohydrate around certain times. Others are, are literally you know you yeah. won't see them so it's it's a and, very different thing and, and the and, other and, one I don't, oh, sorry Michael.
0: That, that that's that, that's the issue I have with roar because I have it I've read it and uh I think it actually it it kind of it sensationalizes things or it doesn't sensationalize things it it uh generalizes things uh too much like it it and I think I don't know if it seems because I've interviewed her in the past as well um but i think as i've learned more and coached more uh, athletes female athletes had these conversations i've learned more and more that yeah there's just no one uh <laughs> one way of doing it and and that's where maybe to be honest like i don't give those resources even though i have those i I have knowledge about them um one one resource that i think is great is um kelly mcnulty has a podcast and an instagram account and she was uh, a guest on the show and she's well, she has a background in academia, but also in uh, is active in coaching, and I think she, her perspective on it is is extremely sound. But it is at the end of the day that it's just you're just adjusting for the individual, uh, yeah. because it, the, the vari- variation is so huge.
1: Uh, it's true, and, and the other thing as well, to be honest, like I, I think what Stacy did do was she she brought the elephant to the front of the room. Yes, she, she yes. brought uh, that. This was yeah. a valid topic for discussion, for research, for resource to be applied to. And it is huge. And, and there's also every individual athlete will have a relationship with you or I or whoever that may be. And they might not want to talk about it. They might be really uncomfortable to talk about it. So I think it's really difficult. I, I would, I always bring it up with athletes and just say, look, do you track, you know, and try and read the room best you possibly can with regards to, you know, at what, how comfortable or uncomfortable is the athlete about doing that? So I, I've got athletes aware of that, that don't want to discuss it. They're just And that's fair enough, you know, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a hugely personal thing. And then I've got other athletes that will come in and go, I've almost got right, okay, this is, <laughs> there's too much information being shared here, you know what I mean? And I, I think it's a very individual thing. So I think we need to keep talking about it and we need to have an open door policy. But I'm, I'm with you, I, I, I don't go too deep into it because if the athlete has, needs to have bloods so and needs to have some form of supplementation or whatever, that's not my area of expertise. If they say, look, I need to have, like we've got one world-class athlete who says, look, I need to have X, Y, and Z in my diet for this period of time. Cool. I can make food taste good with these, these, these core ingredients in it. Um, but again, it's such an individual thing. It's difficult. And it's also, I think very difficult as a man, trying to speak to women about it because you, you can't understand how they're feeling. You can't put yourself in their shoes. It's, uh, you know because it can be embarrassing it can be uncomfortable and it's not talked about so it's a, it's a, it's a tricky subject but yeah there is a difference mm. for sure yeah. And we have to be very lucky think ourselves very lucky we don't have to worry about it personally yeah.
0: so let's start to wrap up and uh, if you could leave the listeners and let's do this uh, uh, as a brief summary or brief takeaways one to three brief takeaways from today's interview <laughs> that you want to leave the, the
1: listeners uh, with because we have been going for a long time i love it i love it Do you know what i was listening to one of your podcasts the other day <laughs> i thought you were with tipper and i know tipper from yeah. years ago i you had a two-part with tipper and i was laughing i thought you're never yeah. getting tipper to shut up anyway uh right rob right, So takeaways uh um, what did i say Plan your food alongside your training. If you do nothing else, when you've got your training come in, plan what you're going to eat is probably one. Train your gut and practice race nutrition. I would say that is number two. So work for the work required, train your gut. And then thirdly, learn new skills in the kitchen. If you can do nothing else, learn how to hold a knife, how to make a pan of soup, how to poach an egg, how to make a normal. Learn those life skills because cooking has become niche and there's a lot of really good resources on the internet, and just learn new skills. So,
0: do you have do you have some 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 resources, whether it's YouTube channels or blogs or, or whatever it might be, that you would recommend regarding mm. learning new skills in the kitchen?
1: Um, unfortunately, I'm the worst person to ask because I always claim that I've forgotten I've forgotten more about food than most experts will ever know because I've been doing it. Uh, Babish Cooking with Babish, B-A-B-I-S-H he does some real cool stuff and he's got millions of Instagram followers he's worth watching, I don't watch any mate because I always look at it and go I could do it better so at some point we have, we have thought, and I haven't had the time to do it because I'm on the road quite a lot about doing a Performance Chef YouTube channel because I think it would be really cool, you know it's like the best recovery meal you're ever going to get is toasted sourdough with crushed avocado and poached eggs. Most people don't know how to do a poached egg. If I could teach you how to do that and how to make a sweet potato tortilla, man, that's lunch taken care of forever. You don't need to know how to do anything else, you know. So, uh, I, I, I think at some point, maybe when I get bored of being on the road, I'll do my own YouTube channel. But yeah, learn new cooking skills. So that would be my, uh, that would be my three things that I would suggest you could do.
0: Great. And now let's do the rapid fire question. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And yeah. The first one is What's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports?
1: Um, I'm a big, big reader. I read a lot. I read probably 45 minutes to an hour every night and I listen to a lot of podcasts. First and foremost, people need to subscribe to your podcast because I, I think it's genuinely really good. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on here. I think it's brilliant. And I think this podcast, I like your stuff uh, a lot. I think it's good. The other one I really like is, and this will come into a book, Supporting Champions by Dr. Mm-hmm. Steve Ingham. Um so my favorite books currently, one that's very relevant to myself, Midlife Cyclist by Phil Cavill. Talks about aging athletes and how you can continue to become less slow as you uh, as you get older. I think that's a great book. Supporting Champions by Steve Ingham. He's got a podcast on a book. So for any of us Practitioners that work in sport, I think it's a really good understanding about how to operate there. And um, Rini McGregor's latest book called "More Fuel You" is another very good book. Um, Rini, even though she's a very very well read, educated woman, can put sports science around food into layman's terms. And one more because you've asked me to to make it short is it's a really good life manual and it's really old and it's the seven habits of highly effective people by dr stephen covey in my lifetime i must have bought over a hundred copies of this to give away to people and it's about seeking to understand it's about habits it's about thinking it's it's just a really good book about good habits around life Uh, i think it's it's a great thing i think if you it's not Around endurance sport, but it's about practicing good life skills. And if you could apply them, you could cross them over. I think it would be certainly really good. So, yeah, Seven Habits by Stephen Colby.
0: That's great. I've, I think if I had asked you for one paragraph, you would have given me 20 books and read the back cover of all of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love books. I've got all, I piles of books. The thing is, because I didn't, I, I left school early and, and, I'm not stupid or any such. I've got a first for knowledge. I love reading books. Sports science books really. I'm I'm difficult because like your podcast for me is on the cusp of being too nerdy, and I'm just saying that because I'm I'm not an academic. And I read some. I read a research paper the other day, and I thought man, why have they said 5,000 words? This is one paragraph. And, and academia, and uh, they tend to overcomplicate things. And So I read sports science books, and sometimes I'll go back to them and I'll post it, note them. But I love reading, but I, a lot of it's more about it's just that first for knowledge because I just think you're just like a sponge. And if you if you don't, especially as I'm old, like I'm, in, I'm, 50, I'm 50, 51, I just think you just got to keep putting stuff in your head and just keep challenging yourself. So, yeah, I've got lots of books. I've normally got about six on the go at any one time as well. So that's it. Those are the ones yeah. beside the bed currently.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And what's an important habit that you've benefited from, athletically, professionally, or personally?
1: Um, I would say learning, learning from different genres of the sport. When I first started Performance Chef, i left the restaurant world and I loved being in a high-performing environment. But I, I, I was tired of that environment. I wasn't passionate or excited about it anymore. So I basically set a performance shaft because I saw there was a missing link. And what I've endeavoured to do is to work in different genres of the sport because they all have something going for them. So I started in triathlon, and then athletics, and time trialling, then governing body, track cycling, then road cycling, and now mountain bike. So I think the don't sit still try and keep evolving as a person because i could find myself a very comfortable existence but i think that I've, i i want to keep learning and i don't want to rest on my laurels and i just want to keep learning from different genres of the sport so I'd, yeah so that, i love that. that that's something that's really important to me because to stay in triathlon would have been cool but i kind of did that with the best athlete at the time and i, I just think you've just got to keep challenging like mountain bike at the moment i love it i absolutely love it and and I'm genuinely excited. There's a lot of skills that other parts of the sport could learn from mountain bike, especially the sharp end. So, nah, it's good. Keep never, ever learning. And I think you have to keep changing stuff as well. Recognize that relationships have a timeline, both personally and professionally. And if you can't keep developing as a person, then you're just going to be. It's going to become comfort kills vigilance with that. And I think I go try and put myself every so often in a really new environment that I don't know anything about. I hadn't watched a World Cup race, mountain bike race, before I started working in it. I'd never watched a Kieran live before I started working in it because I asked all the stupid questions. Why are they doing that? Or how does that work? Because once you think you know everything, then you're you're dead in a high performing environment. So yeah, keep changing.
0: And who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? This is
1: this 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 is difficult to summarize because I think if you keep your eyes open in elite sport, there's always something. There's something every day, you know. And I'm more motivated and inspired now by the human element of it, other than the purely genetics, because the amount of sub two hundred five East African runners out there is just boring, and I find it all, you know, no matter how many. South American climbers can do six watts per kilo while breathing out the nose. I I I prefer much more the human element. So if I think about this morning on the news, you know, there was a young uh, high diver called Andrea Siriex. You know, she's 17 and she medaled at the Olympics. She may have won at the Olympics, but she's a world-class diver. She's 17. She's on national television talking about body image and aesthetic sports at 17. I'm huge inspired, but like, geez, 17. I can't tell you what I was doing at 17, but I didn't have the mental fortitude and capacity to talk on a global stage. So that blew my mind. I loved when I worked with Gwen Jorgensen, if I go back pre-2016, she was winning all the time and she just had a winning mindset. And her and part had the view that they wouldn't do anything, it wasn't going to help her win the Olympics. And to have that mental fortitude to do that week in, week out, and she was unbeatable. Um Evie Richards, World Mountain Bike Champion, 2021. She recently did a a huge piece about disordered eating. Whilst current world champion, really difficult subject, like so hard to talk about. She went out, and I I was inspired by that. Um, Anna Kiesenhofer in the Olympics, you know, she went and won the Olympics, got off a friend. That was just that was a mind game. She went and she worked out how to beat the best teams in the world on her own, and she did it. You know, going back on the triathlon, I thought sub seven. Was re- some seven seven, seven, eight, was really good. I loved it. I love the fact that Skipper turned up at the last minute and absolutely took it to him. He shouldn't have been there. He knew he shouldn't have been there. And he took it to him and did everything he had. And I think the way, again, Calf Matthews came in at the last minute and when she ran past Spirig in the final stages of that, man, that's proper hairs on the back of the next stuff. So I found both of those inspiring because both of those athletes would probably, they'll be the first that admit not of. have thought, you know, they weren't the top athletes to be picked for that, but both did amazing performances and I thought they were great. I think Jan's seven twenty seven solo that he did when he only had Lionel for bait in the middle of lockdown, I think that's the single most impressive performance I've seen. He had nobody, just had Lionel in a shitty day in Germany, going up and down a bit of Joe carriageway. Um I would say that that's probably that's probably up there. Um and Chelsea Sodaro Winning Kona. Like, I'll be honest, anybody that's got kids, 18 months after having a kid to go to Kona and be all these athletes that have got unlimited resources and unlimited time and to do what she did, mate, that's amazing. But I'll be honest with you, 18 months later, nah. Especially in that sport, that is like, I am totally and utterly blown away with that. So I find all of those things inspiring. If you ask me to give you one person, it has to be Jan Frodeno. You know, you look at what Jan's done, And how he's created a brand, and how he's become bigger than the sport. I can't think of another triathlete that is a brand, and maybe you can correct me on this because you do, you know, you will correct us if if you think I'm talking out of hand. That has created such a brand that's as strong as Jan. Um, I love what he stands for. He's a fairly amazing human being, and I just think the brand and the way he's managed to extend himself beyond the sport of swim, bike, run is is quite something. And I don't know anybody that isn't inspired by what Jan Frodeno's done. And I know he's in the autumn of his career now, but Jan's probably the man for me. I would say that is the most inspirational motivation. Yeah,
0: uh, I, I agree. I think that's that's a great pick, and and also great, uh, great moments. Oh, may I may yeah, I,
1: I could talk about this all day long because I just think there's the, the the human element that is in sport. And like we, I've done some stuff with Jan, and I've seen how he operates when there's not a camera, there's not a press, or whatever, and there's few finer human beings that you'll ever come across in that man. And again, you see somebody in a white trisuit with blue on it, you just think Ferdano. Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. you know, you never see anybody in a white in horizon. You see Ryzen, you just think it's Ferdano. You know, you just Yeah, you can see it. You can see the gait, you can see the build. Yeah. He's I, I can't think. Can you think of another triathlete that's that's kinda than that? I can't
0: I mean I, I would say uh Alistair Brownlee would maybe be be up there. And uh, maybe to a lesser extent, but still uh, more, more more local than global, but but Javier Gomez, I think, could. But yeah, that's not... But Alistair Brownlee would be the one that uh, I, yeah, I, uh, I realistically uh, might be. Uh,
1: might Alistair, would have been, Alistair would have been in there. The thing is, Alistair, and I, I loved Alistair's racing. I loved Alistair's racing. And I talked about this. And again, it's a bit... I'm, I'm going on now. You and I are, were in here. We're in deep. You know, I talked about like... I was talking with somebody the other day about it. It was a mate of mine who was talking about it. And I said, you know what? I miss having him at WTRS's, WTS races, bullying people, harassing them, making it uncomfortable. And these boys don't have any pressure in WTS at the moment. They don't have Alistair being like, do you remember seeing him in the bike parks with his brother? Get Come on. You know, if you weren't coming through, he'd rip your head off. And the way he used to run off the bike, mate, he was filthy to race against. And you just never knew what he was going to do. And I I, I love that about Alistair. There was an aggression. There was a, a mindset. I remember watching him in Leeds uh i think it might have been 2016 i was up watching the w test it was it was olympic year i watched it and him and johnny went and did a crit race around leeds city center yeah and the shit that. the shit he was giving johnny on the side of the road he was rugging his brother like rugging there were miles away i was saying i think uh was Aaron royal got away with him and it, he was out the front mate honestly he was ripping him to bits and i was like so aggressive he had the race one he didn't care he was he didn't want to win, he wanted to obliterate everybody. And there was just something about Alistair and his pomp. There was that arrogance, there was that swagger. And and unfortunately, we haven't actually seen it. Like we've never seen we never saw Alistair go toe-to-toe with Keen Le, with Jan, with these boys when he was when he's been super fit and super Alistair Brownlee. And, and I I think we've missed an amazing opportunity. I would have loved to have seen an aggressive Alistair, a Jan. In in Fideno shape against the Norwegians, almost. I would love to have seen it. We're, it's not yeah. going to happen because Alistair brings something in races. He brings an unpredictability and an aggression and a tenacity that that yeah. I, and I I I I think I think WTS racing. Like I I laughed as well. We was at Commonwealth Games. Like I laughed when. Um, Alex, she caught Hayden Wilde and gave him a little tap and a oh, high five. Can you imagine Alistair doing that? that was, <laughs> I was just like, I, I'm not your mate. I'm not going on holiday with you. I'm not going to the bar with you afterwards. I'm going to rip your head. Can you imagine? That would never have happened. And I, He wouldn't have done it with his brother. He certainly would never have done it. Could you imagine? I just saw this. Yeah. It, it, it was just, you know. So I, I think I, I would agree, Alistair's is a truly iconic athlete. I just wish we could have seen him rip it long course i mean properly phil brownlee madness when he's got the madness in him and we haven't seen it we haven't seen the we have
0: we have we haven't I, i i'm not quite ready to give up on it yet though
1: (laughs) No, no 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 i i there's there's something there and the thing is as well you write off you know you write off that man at your peril because you know what he's there's there's something about him he's made from different minerals no no i would i would agree i would i would totally agree i just hope that he can get can bring it all together because i'd love to see him just just bring the madness just the madness yeah. you know what i mean when the madness the, yeah the, the, yeah the, the brownlee madness yeah yeah
0: all right well uh, this has been a great chat alan uh thank you so much where can people follow you and and find you online
1: um well i don't i the only Real platform I'm using all the time is, is Instagram. So I'm performance.chef on Instagram. I do stuff about time trialing and food. Try and keep it real. Post recipes on there. Um, we do nutrition plans, which is through performancechef.com. But Get in touch with us on the gram. We've got a couple of pretty cool books. Um, we've got The Cycling Chef, um, Volume 1 and 2, which are Bloomsbury. You can buy them from... Um, satan's Bookshop, which is amazon and um, they're available on there and uh, they've they've got recipes at work they've all been tested on olympians and world-class athletes so they all work and we've got another two books that are hopefully going to be out next year so yeah so buy books off amazon and then look at instagram for good recipes
0: yeah good good uh good option for christmas gifts perhaps for triathlon or endurance sports friends and family
1: no and the the recipes work and they genuinely work and there's there's i don't think there's there's many recipe books you can say that every single recipe is being tested in a world-class environment and they have and they all work and we've got macros and everything so what you Mm -hmm. do is get yourself a you know my fitness pal because you love it michael uh you get the books and you can just link all your markers together and then this time next year you'll be saying my god i've pb'd everything and i've done all this cool stuff so brilliant
0: yeah great okay thank you i look forward to talking again soon alan Uh, it's been great so thank you so much
1: cheers thanks for having me on
0: i hope that you enjoyed that interview uh, as you could tell uh, i could talk to alan for hours and well we did for a couple of hours and actually we did talk for uh, one more hour after we finished recording so clearly uh, at the very least i enjoyed the conversation that we had as always you can find the show notes on scientifictraveling.com. i have probably 15 links there to various episodes and resources and books so i'm not going to name any of them just check it out if you're interested uh, they are related to the episode that we uh, just had and uh, next monday on the podcast i will interview erin carson who has been on the podcast before a few years ago she's a strength training coach uh, specializing in working with endurance athletes and i've been thinking for a while that it's time to get her back on again but what really triggered me to stop thinking and start emailing was that in the women's 73 world championship all three podium athletes taylor nib paula Finlay, and emma Pallant brown uh, works with her for their strength training so we'll hear about that and a bunch of other things around strength training for triathletes uh, in next week's interview before we finish i want to remind you to check out our training camp in mallorca at the end of march you can find all the information about it on scientific and you can of course email me directly if you want to learn more or if you want to register it will be an amazing week of training mallorca is an amazing place to train the cycling there is stunning so don't miss the opportunity to come and train with a bunch of like-minded people and build some great fitness ahead of your 2023 season finally big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that you can find on precision use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid electrolyte and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine your plan further use the code tts22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of their products and thank you to zenate use the zenate swim trainer to improve your technique power stamina and swim training consistency you can try the zenate risk-free for up to 30 days and get the special Zenate and TTS bundle including a swim trainer and a number of Zenate training plans and on-demand workouts on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you as always for listening, keep training smart and keep loving Triathlon.